Hello, uh, YouTube watchers and podcast listeners. Welcome to Movie Change Up. My name is Johnny Dupe, and I will be your host uh, and one of your judges today. Um, please start off by uh, liking and subscribing on YouTube, giving us a five-star rating on all of your favorite podcast apps. You can find us on all the social medias at Movie Change Up. We are on Instagram, uh, Twitter. We're even trying to connect with you youngins with TikTok, which we are still somewhat confused by, but we're working through it. Um, but you can see plenty of different videos on there, whether it's promos or ads or um, different versions of uh, films that we've done. And Bobby has uh, some great musical content on there as well. I highly recommend it. So check us out on, on TikTok if you want some different content. Um, we're coming with you. Uh, we're coming at you today with some Golden Globe themed films, uh, and we are excited for it. Uh, so my other judge today, I will start by introducing him. Bobby, I shouted out your music. Um, are you ready to judge today after a last-minute defeat last week? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it was a little disappointing last week. I fought, you know, battle, so not not too bad. Uh, you know, it wasn't the six-to-one defeat I had a, against you at the, in our last Forgotten Movies one, so uh, that's not too bad. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Um, and like you said, I've been enjoying new, doing those music uh, kind of TikToks, so... Uh, I hope people are checking it out, but I'm looking forward to our themed, you know, Golden Globes themed fight that we got today with those coming up on uh, the nominations probably going to be announced soon. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. And then I'll start off uh, with one of our uh, competitors today. Last week, he helped me judge, uh, but this week he's getting back in the ring uh, after suffering a defeat to me last time we faced. Um, Tristan, how's your, your foot? My there. foot is fully recovered, but I will say that my pride has been hurt by Joe Fricky. He had some very intense words for me on TikTok this morning, and I was too busy actually working on my pitches to get on TikTok and that's social media. You know, I'm sure Joe spent his whole week on TikTok, you know, and then not working on his pitches. So we're going to see that results in this episode today. I mean, I work on my pitches. I watch movies. I study film. You know, I have some masterpieces right here, like Batman v Superman, ready to go whenever I need it. And I'm, I'm here to be the best. I'm not here to be uh, viral on TikTok, Joe, with your with your 40 views on your attack video for me. I'm here to win and get the win. You know, you're now a six days since your last victory, and that's going to keep on going up and up and up and up until it's back up to, what, 171 again? We're going to get to 365. You're going to be a year with no wins, Joe. This entire season, you got one win. Enjoy it because it's your last win. Wow. All right. Some strong words from mr business suit over there um and he's feeling confident after healing up that foot so my fellow co-creator of the show joe tristan obviously had some strong words um how do you respond do you plan on going uh 173 days without a win again yeah you see uh the thing is if you haven't noticed i'm wearing a captain america sweatshirt right now i got a gryffindor you know blanket behind me and there's one thing that the Captain America, there's one thing that Captain America, you know, my fellow Gryffindors and I all believe in, and that's we're not a fan of bullies. And Tristan is a bully. And today I'm here to prove that bullies don't win. You know, he goes, he makes fun of me on TikTok. He makes fun of me here. And I'm just here to prove that, you know, that's not the way to live your life. You should live a good and fruitful, joyous life and be kind to people. It's way easier to love people than to hate people. And Tristan just seems to hate people yeah i'm gonna be All pretty right. joyous when i win today so it'll be a joyous life in my victory 
Yeah, I guess I'm excited uh, for this. Joe's Joe's uh, theme today seems to be the 2015 Cinderella, which is "Have Courage and Be Kind." If anyone knows that, but we just watched that for the 70th time because my wife loves that movie. So, <laughs> Joe's honestly, though, I agree with Tristan. Joe's theme with Captain America and Gryffindor is he's a basic bitch to the day. So we are excited to see uh, where this goes. Shout out to my fellow Hufflepuffs out there. Um, there we go. The uh, all right. So as I mentioned, uh, we're doing Golden Globe theme today because those are coming up. The um, uh, nominations were were announced were a while announced. ago. Yeah, yeah. Ceremonies on Sunday. <laughs> Is it really? Yeah, ceremony Sunday. That's why we're doing it now. Yeah, and uh, and no one knew that. But see, they're Sunday. So to get in the spirit of the uh, Golden Globes, our two competitors today will be facing in uh, the Golden Globes winners for best comedy, which is still astounding that that's a category to me. But um, we went through and we actually found some decent choices here. So I will read off the movies and then uh, my fellow judge over there, Bobby, will read the rules that the competitors are, are using today. Again, we're doing seven movies, as always, and our competitors will have seven rules. They can only use one rule uh, per pitch, um, but they do have to use uh, one uh, every time. So we are starting today. I will just read off uh, in the order that I have. Uh, we are doing The Longest Yard from 1974. Uh, we are doing Mrs. Doubtfire from 1993. MASH from 1970. Driving Miss Daisy from 1989. My Fair Lady, 1964, Moulin Rouge uh, from 2001, and The Graduate from 1967. Um, so, Bobby, uh, that being said, what are our seven rules that competitors uh, must use today? We have one character must break the fourth wall. You must use the cast of a sitcom. One must include a Scorsese character. One must be cast as a 1980s movie. One must be set in a single location. One must be a Tyler Perry movie, and one must be set in a dystopian future. All right. That is exciting stuff. Um, Joe won our little competition before the uh, match, so he gets to choose what movie we're doing first and who goes first. Uh, I'm actually going to go with My Fair Lady first, and I'm going to let Tristan start. All right. My Fair Lady came out in 1964. The IMDb description is... A snobbish phonetics professor, Henry Higgins, agrees to a wager that he can make flower girl Eliza Doolittle presentable in high society. It's a story that's been told many times throughout history. This is one of the originals that did it. So, um, I, uh, Tristan, you're starting. What uh, do you have for My Fair Lady? So, for My Fair Lady, I'll start off with my rule here and say that I brought back a Martin Scorsese character. I'll get into which one when I go through my cats in a second. I only cast uh, three of my characters. I think when you're doing a musical like this, it's cool to bring in people who are talented in Broadway and talented performances. So I think I trust the director, Olivia Wilde, to bring out some really interesting performances out of people. She showed in Booksmart that she can find actors and actresses who are very talented that we don't particularly know very well. So that's what I think would be best for My Fair Lady. But my lead is known pretty well. My two leads, in fact. Uh, Emma Watson plays Eliza Doolittle. And Harry Styles plays Ted Archer. And his father is Daniel Day-Lewis's character in Newland Archer from Martin Scorsese's Age of Innocence. So if you've seen Age of Innocence, you know that Newland Archer is sort of this high society. Uh, in the movie, he's very young and he's in love with 
uh, two women, and he's kind of split between the two, and one is his duty to his family, and the other is who he actually loves. And this movie takes place about 25 years after the events of uh, Age of Innocence, and he's now an older man raising his kid. His, his son, Ted Archer, is now looking to be engaged to be married. He's trying to find a wife. And he, Emma Watson stars as Eliza Doolittle. She uh, is a struggling shop worker. She's dreaming of a higher society life, but she's unable to break out of her social class. Meanwhile, Newland Archer is preparing his young adult son for marriage. Now, through the events of Age of Innocence, uh, Newland has kind of become jaded, and he's lost his idea that love can never be successful in this kind of society. But he sees that his son is very ambitious and that his son still kind of believes in love, so he gives him a proposition and says, if you can take this low-class woman that you seem to be so invested in and make her seem to be a high-class woman, give her a dress, make her a lady, make her someone that we bring her to this gala, and these high-class people won't even know the difference. If you can pull that off, you can marry her. Uh, so they happen into the shop, and Ted asks Emma to go to dinner with her, or dinner with him, and they ha- begin this romance, and he's trying to transform her and build her into this high-class woman, and she's very into it at first. She thinks, oh, I've always wanted to be like a princess. I've always wanted to get away from my pover- impoverished lifestyle. I can't wait to be this high-society high person. And in the end, they bring her out to the ball, and... Uh, she is believed, they buy into it, and everyone's kind of shocked by how this transformation. But she realizes this is who I have to be forever. She, he didn't just put on a show for me. He changed me. He wants me to be this woman forever. This wasn't just a thing he had me do so that we could be together as ourselves. He wants me to be her. So they break up. They leave. She says, I'm going back to my normal life. This is not who I really am. And she says, Ted, if you can't be with the real me, then you can't be with me. And they break up, they separate, they reunite at the end. Ted approaches Eliza and he tells her, look, I don't care what my family thinks. I don't care what these high society people think. I want to be with you for who you are, and I'm going to find a way to make that work. And in the end, they end up trying to trying to follow through on this romance. They're not quite sure if it's going to go through or not, much like uh, Age of Innocence. It's kind of left on this down, slightly tragic note where you'd see that they're going to try to work this out, but you're not quite sure if it's going to be what they both want in the end. And I set mine 25 years later because the end of Age of Innocence has a flash forward to when Daniel Day-Lewis's character goes and considers reuniting with his long-lost love from the from the film of the story. So I wanted to sort of retcon this story into being what inspires him to take that chance, to go and, and, and go to Paris and try and find his love again. So I wanted to sort of retcon this into being uh, in between those two storylines of Age of Innocence and really focus on the dynamic of the relationship between Eliza and Ted as her new love interest. I wanted to, because the original movie is three hours long. I don't need this to be three hours long. I want this to be a short, concise, focused, uh, dramatic comedy on this one relationship. And we have this background supporting character that we know of Newland Archer, but he, and he, we see his arc kind of as a supporting character, but it's very much focused on Emma Watson and Harry Styles' relationship. But that's what I want most about My Fair Lady. And that's my pitch. All right. Okay. Um, sounded very My Fair Lady. Uh, Joe, uh, what do you got to combat that today? All right. Uh, I want a little bit different direction. My director is going to be Jeff Nichols, who directed Loving and Midnight Special. My Henry Higgins is going to be played by Jesse Plemons. Uh, he was in, you know, Breaking Bad, Black Mirror, and for the real ones out there like Mike. And my Eliza is going to be played by Kirsten Dunst. So, in a dystopian world, which is the rule I used, 
uh, nearly wiped out by a deadly virus, humans are afraid to go near each other. The lack of human interaction is damaging society as a whole. Snobbish robotics professor Henry Higgins bets his friend, played by Joel Edgerton, he can design an AI that can pass for human. Henry spends time building and programming an, a robot named Eliza, which stands for Electronic Life Internal Zenith Autonet. She goes from being able to mimic Henry's speech patterns to having a full conversation. Henry takes Eliza to a restaurant and she starts out doing well, but she gets a sensory overload and starts walking around and participating in every conversation around them. Henry takes her back to his workshop and retools even further. The two meet up with his friend and go for a walk. She is having a full conversation and she's ignoring those around her. A little girl is crying up ahead. Eliza walks up to her. Henry thinks the test has failed. However, Eliza kneels down and talks to the girl, comforting her. Henry's friend asks if he programmed her to do that, and Henry says no. Henry is surprised that Eliza has developed compassion all on her own. Eliza soon becomes tired of Henry's tests. When she finds out she was only created as part of a bet, she runs away. Henry follows Eliza and comforts his creation. When he realizes he is comforting a synthetic object, he realizes his test worked. However, he is unsure if Eliza is a living being and decides that it isn't right to sell her, and that is my pitch for my movie on retitling Eliza. Okay, all right. I didn't like your casting of Kirsten Dunst, but then you explained that she's uh, robotic, so it made sense. Um, okay, I have an idea of both, both films. Um, Bobby, you got any questions for them that you need to hear uh, from them? Um, I understood, like, both movies. Um, I really only have a question for Tristan, which is, uh, as you go, just kind of defend your casting of Emma Watson in a musical, because that was, like, the main one of the main criticisms of Beauty and the Beast was her singing, because they had to heavily auto-tune it. Um, so is she going to be singing a lot in your movie? Um, or is, you know, is it mainly focused on Harry Styles, or how does that go? I should answer that now. I'll answer and say uh, Harry Styles is definitely, like, the most of the singing. I think... Uh, Emma Watson in the original uh, movie, Eliza, is sort of cockney. She doesn't really have, like, the proper high society voice and persona that you think that she has. So we have some scenes where she's singing for sure. But I think I want to lean into the fact that Emma Watson isn't necessarily a great singer. So I want Eliza to feel like an outsider, not just in her acting and performance, but in, like, the way that she's singing and the way she's performing. So I went with Emma Watson, who has experience singing okay, but not necessarily great. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think um, mine's mainly for Joe. Um, so just answer this and get into the into the fighting. We'll give you some, about five minutes on this. But I got a clear picture of what Tristan's tone of his movie is. It's very romantic movie. Maybe it has a couple uh, little funny scenes, but for the most part, it's a romance and a musical. But Joe, with your director choice and then the movie you pitched, I'm just curious: is yours more comedy? Is it more rom com? Like, what's the what's the uh, if you had to put percentages on romance versus comedy, what would you say? I mean, mine's a lot more of a serious movie. I mean, there are probably going to be some comedic moments, like when uh, he's running the test and he thinks it's going well at first, and then she goes and runs around and tries to participate in every conversation in the restaurant. You're going to have some comedic moments there. But I think for the most part, mine's going to be a lot more of a serious tone of a movie. Okay, so, all right. Um, with that being said... This will be an interesting one to hear you guys fight it out. But yeah, we'll give you about five minutes on this. So yeah, one of my main th- uh, oh. Joe, you start. Yeah, yeah. One of my main things against Tristan is I don't feel like Daniel Day like Daniel Day Lewis is retired. The thing that's not going to bring him out of retirement is a musical playing a character he's already played before. 
in a remake of another film. That's just like everything Daniel Day Lewis wouldn't do. Like I feel like it's a bad rule used to bring Daniel Day Lewis of all, you know, actors and characters back. Well, I think he says retired, but he keeps coming back anyway, and I don't think he's necessarily retired. I think it would be exciting to see him come back and play this role. It's a very small part, so I think he's wouldn't have to be doing the high intensity method acting he's used to doing. It could be something he shows up the it's a chance to work with Olivia Wilde, someone that I think he would be happy to work with at a star on the rise. It's a chance to pay tribute to Scorsese, tribute to a director who's brought out some of his death performances. I just think it would be really great, good to see him come back. And sure, he might not necessarily go for it, but I mean, it's my remix, my pitch. If I was making it, I would definitely want him to have, have him come back and do it. Yeah, I mean, but I've made that argument before where I brought him back for a movie and I was told he was retired, he's not coming back, so... Like, I mean, if it was all magical fantasy land, we'd all cast, like, we'd all have Quentin Tarantino and Christopher Nolan and, you know, the best directors, but we try to have more realistic pitches. At least that's how it's been, you know, however many episodes of this we've done now. I mean, sure, that's one element of my movie, but I'm not going to focus on that one little thing. You're, I want to talk about your movie. Your movie, I think the tone is the totally wrong choice. When you said Kirsten Dunst is voicing a robot with Jesse Plemons, I thought, oh, that sounds really fun. That sounds like it would be funny. It sounds like it would lead to a lot of really cool humor. It would have some drama too, but I would definitely want to see that be more fun, more silly. And you said, oh yeah, I'm definitely taking this serious. I'm definitely going to go for the, the more serious dark tone of this talking robot love story movie. And I feel like that is the wrong direction. I think your 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 pitch leans much more towards comedy and much more towards fun than I think you think it does. I mean, mine's... Because, my, I mean, she doesn't look like a robot. Like, she looks like Kirsten Dunst in my movie. Like, it's... I mean, Ex Machina has a talking robot, and that's not really a comedy movie either. Like, you can have robots in your movie without it being a comedy. Sure, but you're remaking a comedy, and I think... Yeah, you and you're, basically what I feel elements. like your movie is just, like, a copy and paste of the previous movie. It's just, oh, it has Daniel Day-Lewis now, and it's, you know, Harry Styles. I feel like your movie is more of what I've seen before. My movie, I wanted to do something completely different. This movie's been remade and told in a bunch of different ways. Like, she's all that. And then, like, TV episodes have done this story before, and I was trying to do it in a way of, like, hey, I haven't seen this this way before. It's just, like, hey, I'm going to take a girl from low society and make her high society. Like, they've done it hundreds of times. Like, get over it and do something else with this story. And that's what I did. I think mine, sure, it follows a general, like, plot premise and beats of the original but i think it streamlines it a lot more i think making emma watson the lead i think here is a shopkeeper i think you cut out the whole linguistics kind of weirdness about it and you just make it about a relationship you focus on the relationship you don't have people talking about the oh these poor people who talk so bad and, and you don't have like linguistic professors talking and and i feel like you make it more focused on the relationship more focused on the romance and we've seen this done before but we haven't seen this done in this way. We haven't seen it as a traditional romance and musical. I think it's been done in the big scale. And it's been done very direct. And I think this takes the premise and does it in a way it's faithful to the original, faithful to the idea and the premise, but doesn't totally change it up. Yeah, I mean, my thing is, if you take out the linguistics aspect and you, you know, you do that, then what does he have to teach her, I guess, of like living in high society if she's already... If he doesn't have to, you know, that's one of the big aspects, and that was one of the main reasons that the original Liza Doolittle didn't fit in. So then if you take that aspect out, what is there that he has to teach her that her dad says, oh, she won't fit in? Well, a voice is one thing, but I think uh, that's very, I don't know, an easy 
specific thing. I want to focus on her mannerisms, her movement, the way she looks at herself, her self-esteem, and, and her voice, and the way she talks. I want it to be a way of she's trying to transform herself and change herself, but by the end, you're realizing like she didn't have to change. She's better as who she was rather than changing everything about herself to be someone different. So you're, now I you're think... saying it's about her self-esteem, and so basically what you're saying is in his movie, he gives her confidence, and then at the end, it's like, oh, well, I shouldn't have confidence in myself. She's realized she doesn't have to change herself to be confident. She can be confident without completely changing everything about her personality. Yeah, I don't know. I just don't feel like it's, there's enough there to warrant, like, why is... Like, I feel like the things you're changing about her aren't necessarily, like, bad. Like, oh, you say she needs self-esteem or she doesn't have self-esteem and then it turns out she doesn't need self-esteem. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I think I got my decision if Bobby, um, if you do. You yeah, I think I do. Um, and I did choose it, uh, so I'll make the final ruling. Yeah. But Johnny, I do want to hear your thoughts, even though I, I'm pretty sure I know where I'm going anyways. It's tough. I was back and forth the whole time on this one. I, I think at first I liked um, I liked Tristan's pitch better, and then Joe fought for his movie, and I was leaning towards Joe, and then Tristan fought back, and I liked his, and... By the end of it, I think both are pretty even, and I don't think either are ones that I'd ever be interested in going to see. Um, so it's that's always the hardest one for me to judge, just because this isn't my style of movie. Um, in any way, shape, or form, I hate this original film. Um, and I was hoping someone did something a little more interesting. Tristan, I think his cast is better, but... Um, and yeah, I don't hold the... Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis thing completely against you because you did have to choose a character and you didn't just yeah. cast him out of nowhere. Um, I'd, I'd go see Harry Styles in a movie. I guess that's what yours has going for it. But yeah, I'm done with the high society, low society bullshit. Um, I think we're way past that. And... Well, I will say that's part of my movie. It's that I want it to I want it to be about how she thinks, oh, I have to be part of high society to be important. And she realizes at the end, like, that's not what it's about. It's just about being yourself fully and it's not like oh low society yeah, bad that, society I just, good. that that story's been told like there's a movie that comes out every year with that story i feel like and then joe's i i don't know it's tough because i really liked mud uh from jeff nichols but i was disappointed by midnight special so i thought him delving into sci-fi um wasn't his strong suit so i think overall what it comes down to because Joe's I feel like could have made for maybe a funnier premise. Jesse Plemons, I don't see him as a romantic lead in any way. Um, he was very good in uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, but that's a way different style of film. Um, so I think it comes down to just what cast I'd rather watch, and I don't want to see Kirsten Dunst. So I guess I'll go with uh, Tristan's, but it's like 51-49, very close. So I'm glad I'm not making the final decision, but if I had to go away, Bobby, that's what I would say. That's yeah, and, and I was really similar to you where it was back and forth because um, I liked the premise of Joe's better from his pitch, but I liked Tristan's actual pitch, like the story he told better. Um, and as they argued, the more I thought about it, um, because I was really intrigued by the sci-fi take from Joe, uh, but I think it was kind of a mishmash. I don't really love the casting of Kirsten Dunst. Um, I think that could have been a, a better actress and would have made me a little bit more interested. Jesse Plemons, I like him a lot. He's going to be the lead in the new Scorsese movie. Um, but I don't really see him fitting too well. So I think Tristan's cast just brings me over to the top. And this could be like a, like, you know, like a, a date movie or 
that type of thing. So I, I think it, it retells the story in a new enough way with a good cast. Uh, so to me, I'm going to go with Tristan. All right. I'll take so it. Tristan gets the first point. Yeah, Joe, I think if you went like a Spike Jones or maybe a little different director, I think yeah. yours might have at least given me the edge on that one. But that was a close one. Um, so I'm interested to get the rest of the films are ones I'm more interested in, so I'm more excited to hear those. So I'm kind of glad we got this one out of the way first. So, uh, Joe, you barely lost that one. What are we doing next? Uh, we're going to go to the one I was feeling a little bit better about, uh, probably my longest pitch. We're going to go with The Longest Yard. All right. And uh, I'll go first this time because I had Tristan go first last time. All right. So The Longest Yard, obviously, uh, there was the Adam Sandler version uh, that came out uh, mid-2000s-ish. That was enjoyable, but the original is pretty good. It starred Burt Reynolds, um, and the IMDb description is, a sadistic warden asks a former pro quarterback, now serving time in uh, his prison, to put together a team of inmates to take on and get pummeled by the guards. Um, so that's it's a pretty simple premise. Again, most people are probably more familiar nowadays with the Adam Sandler version, uh, but I highly recommend the original with Burt Reynolds. Uh, it's fantastic. So, Joe, you're going first. What do you got for The Longest Yard? All right, so to start with, uh, my director is Taika Waititi. Uh, my Paul Crew is going to be played by Chris Hemsworth. My role of the caretaker is also going to be Taika Waititi. And then I have the role of Jonah Ngata, which is basically the Nate Scarborough role, which was played by Michael Conrad in the original and Burt Reynolds in the Adam Sandler version. That's going to be played by Timura Morrison. My role of Pop, the you know old guy in the prison, is going to be played by Paul Hogan, a.k.a. Crocodile Dundee. My Warden Hazen is going to be Sam Neill. Uh, my Captain Knauer is going to be played by uh, Sam Worthington. Uh, my Unger is Rice Darby. And then my Turley, you know, character, like the big hulking guy, is going to be played by NBA player Steven Adams. And then if you've seen the soccer version of this movie, Mean Machine, uh, there's a like younger person on the team uh, named Billy the Limpet, who's going to be played by Julian Dennison. And then I didn't really give specific roles but I, to these actors, but I cast Manu Bennett and then uh, Tanawai Reed. And then some of the guards in my movie are going to be Carl Urban and uh, Anthony Starr. So first off, for my version, I am changing sports. Uh, We have had two versions cover football and one version cover soccer. My version covers rugby and is set in New Zealand. Another thing I'm doing to set mine apart from the others, and this is where my rule comes in, Chris Hemsworth's character Paul will break the fourth wall throughout. In my version, Paul Crew was captain of the New Zealand national rugby team before getting kicked off the team for showing up drunk to a game. Now he just parties nonstop. There is a scene where Paul tries to steal a cop car, but before he drives away, a cop stops him and asks him if he has been drinking. Paul slurs his words and says he is sober. He turns to the camera and says he hasn't been this drunk since high school. After trying to steal a cop car, he is arrested and sent to one of New Zealand's toughest prisons, nicknamed The Machine. Paul runs into the guards who beat him for misbehaving while mentioning that they lost money on a game New Zealand played against Australia. They ask if it hurts. He says it feels great. While looking at the camera, he says it hurts so bad. There, Paul meets friends, especially with his cell neighbor, the caretaker. We have your typical scene where the warden asks for help with his rugby team in which the guards are players. The conversation ends with Paul having to assemble a team of of cons to play against the guards. Paul meets former New Zealand legend Jonah Ngata, who he thought was dead. Jonah agrees to help coach. 
Early in the team's practicing, Paul hypes the team up and says they are really coming together and doing incredibly. He then turns to the camera and says, this team sucks. After the team gets in a big brawl with each other during practice, he does give up and tells the team that it doesn't look like it's going to work. They can't do anything right, and he is going to tell the warden in the morning they forfeit. Paul goes back to a cell and caretaker gives a speech to the team that this could be the first thing most of them do that's worth anything. The next morning, Paul wakes up and starts to head for the warden's office. He hears some yelling and runs over to see his team performing a haka being led by Jonah on the cell block floor. Paul turns to the camera and says he is impressed. He walks to the team and says he changes his mind and they start practice. When the guards start to fear that the cons are getting too good, they try to kill Paul in his cell but end up killing caretaker. We then have your first serious we then have our first serious fourth wall break where Paul says to the camera that until now he has only wanted to play a respectable game, but now he wants to win. The team has one final practice before the game, and then it's your typical longest yard tropes. They find out the caretaker got them jerseys before he died. The team does too well, and the warden threatens Paul unless they lose. Paul starts to tank until he decides not to repeat past mistakes. He finally admits he did intentionally lose to Australia because of gambling debts. The team comes together and wins. Uh, I know Taika likes to have some politics in his movie, so one thing I would like to touch on is that Maori people only make up 15% of New Zealand's population while making up 50% of their prison population. And then since rugby pitches aren't measured in yards, the title doesn't really work, so I'm changing the name of the movie to The Machine since that is the nickname of the prison and to play on the team name Mean Machine, and I didn't want to name it Mean Machine because that is the title of the soccer version. So, And that's my okay. pitch. Joe, I feel like I was a sliding scale all over that pitch. I was into a lot of it, and I was down on it at first. And I, I think by the end of it, I was more—I was way more into it. So, um, your pitch helped your your casting for sure. Yeah. And Tristan, what do you got for us for the longest yard? All right, when we got this list of movies, I was pretty excited, and then I saw Longest Yard, and I realized it's a comedy and it's a sports <laughs> movie, and the most popular version is an Adam Sandler movie. So I thought, clearly this was picked only to sabotage me and to make me lose. So keep that in mind while I read this pitch. You know, This was chosen entirely because he wanted me to lose this one. I get it. I get it. You want to keep the game even. You don't want it to be 7 nothing. You got to give Joe one. We literally but... picked My Fair Lady for you. <laughs> well, and I won it. You see? So you picked you picked <laughs> Longest Yard for Joe. And I'm going to win this up. one. Let's see how it goes. So I put My Longest Yard in a dystopian society. Because you see it done a lot of times, and dystopian society is a way to make it interesting. Uh, my version is set in a high-intensity uh, prison where robotic police forces have kind of taken over society, and they're capturing anybody who speaks out against the government, against anything that is in any way against the status quo, and puts them in this big high-security prison with no real chance of escape. And every day, or every uh, week or so, they have these big matches between each other, uh, these uh, wrestling matches between the prisoners to keep everybody kind of high energy and try and you know they have these sports to keep the prisoners in line and while the robotic guards are there to protect them and all of this is done is led by a evil terrible warden from he has this thick southern accent he's the owner of this of this robotics company you know he's from georgia he's a very you know intense Hick. He loves his games, but he's always losing. You know, every time he plays, he just loses. Even though he loves to compete, he's just losing all the time. His name is Warden Joe, by the <laughs> way. I think you might know that guy from somewhere. He's played by Josh Gad. 
So Warden Joe just constantly loses all the time. He's a complete loser. Everything he does, mm -hmm. he just loses at, you know? And he finally decides, you know what? I'm going to win this time. I'm going to have this competition where my robotic police force, they're going to fight these prisoners, and they're going to have this big wrestling match between the prisoners and the robots. And the prisoners say, you're crazy. Why would we ever fight these police robots? <laughs> We're going to get killed. So he says, oh, if you beat the police robots, we'll let you guys free. And he assumes, of course, they're not going to win. How did they ever win the police robots? But the prisoners decide we're going to get together, we're going to put aside our differences, and we're going to build up our strength together as a unit to finally beat these robotic police forces. Uh, we have some interesting characters in this in this movie, I think. We have one guy who just, his name is uh, Bobby. It's a, it's a character named Bobby, played by Taylor Swift. Uh, she just loves music. All she talks about is music. She makes these really fun music montages for Josh Gad's character, saying, oh, everything is okay. Here's the music. Isn't it good? Oh, oh, Daft Punk. You remember Daft Punk? They were so good for a little while until someone broke them up off a TikTok video. <laughs> I remember that. So we have Taylor Swift as kind of like the middleman between, between uh, Ward and Joe and the rest of these characters. She's not trying to get involved, but she's the, the angel in the middle, very Taylor Swift to not take a side in anything. And by the way, uh, we also have a character who's sort of the rough and tough leader of the of the prisoners. Uh, Big Jack, he's played by John Favreau, who also wrote and directs the movie, because John Favreau is good when you have, give him a comedy, you give him a small character, dialogue-based comedy, not some kind of big budget action movie, not some CGI remake of something, not an old Hollywood tribute to, to uh, Wizard of Oz, you know, you give him this funny character-based comedy and you can pull it off. And last but not least, you have the loud, bombastic, just constant yeller of the group. He's the one who's always trying to start fights in the prison, always trying to start fights between the prisoners, between the guards and the prisoners. He's always causing trouble. He's nothing but trouble. He thinks he's the best at everything because he constantly wins these wrestling matches. But in reality, he's just loud and annoying. People let him win because they know he's annoying. He's played by Dennis Quaid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and his name, of course, is Johnny. So we have these very charismatic, high personality characters, and they're battling it out for this one final wrestling match to free them from prison. And they come together, they band together, band together as a team, put the difference aside, and they overthrow the corrupt, evil Warden Joe, played once again by the wonderful, amazing Josh Gad. And that's my pitch for Longest Yard. Alright, well, that was a interesting way to take that. Um, yeah. Here's my only question, and it's for Bobby. Do we need to even let them fight? I don't think so. I think we need to give Tristan, um, like, 30 seconds to say why this isn't just a funny in-joke pitch. That it could, you know, and actually make it a legitimate movie. Cause otherwise yeah, Tristan, try to pitch this as an actual movie to me and sell me this. Otherwise, you're done. Yeah. Okay, I, my actual pitch for this... I go John Favreau, writer-director. I think he genuinely does pull off really good movies between characters and comedy between characters. I think that's his biggest strong suit. And I think Josh Gad as this sort of dystopian warden leader is very funny. It's very off-brand for him. I think it would be funny to have him in that role. I really enjoy John Favreau's acting in the MCU, so I think he's played off, he's pulled off Happy pretty well. So I feel like I, I picked this sort of like an exaggerated version of Happy. He's this big muscular muscle man who's there to fight and lead the team. And Taylor Swift, I, I love Taylor Swift, but, and, and having given her a small role, she's had a lot of small acting roles. I think she would have a good time doing this kind of a small role. 
obviously Bobby's not going to be a huge character. It's Taylor Swift. She's kind of more of a stunt casting, and she's just there to have small roles. Uh, this is a long thirty seconds. Yeah, this yeah. is all right. This all right. is you're going too long in this. Um, we have a comment from Paul that I think is appropriate. Uh, that he just says um, Tristan should have just forfeited, uh, which I, I do. That was really funny, but it's definitely not something that's going to win you a pitch, in my opinion. Yeah. But Johnny is the judge, so do you want to let him fight, or do you think? No, they don't need to out? fight. Um, I mean, Tristan assumed that we picked Longest Yard just to spite him, but I just picked it because it's an enjoyable movie, and I think there's a lot you can do with it. Tristan could have done something with it if he tried, but instead he probably just waited to do this one last and throw out a rule and just was like, I'll use this to kind of spite the judges and my other people on the show, which I respect. Yeah. You know, I've done similar things before. It was very entertaining, but more so than the movie. I'd rather just have Tristan. I'd listen to Tristan talk about this movie for two hours rather than actually see the real version. Um, Sounds like a win to me. Yeah. Give me the point. No. Uh, Yeah. No. Um, Josh Gad and Dennis Quaid are the worst. Taylor Swift is also the worst. Um, I'm okay, I guess, with John Favreau, but yeah, no. Um, Joe, I had some issues with yours, but we don't even need to get into that because yours is actually yeah. a real movie. And yep. uh, so, Joe, yeah, the, the that. big casting problem I feel yeah. like people would have against mine is Sam Worthington, but I, I had defenses for that plan. So no, I, the biggest, I like the biggest, it. the biggest yeah. casting problem I had with it was fucking Paul Hogan. Oh, that was a piece of shit. Oh, I don't know. I just was like, he's gonna have three lines, and I figured it'd be yeah. stunt casting anyways. Like, who cares? He's not gonna. In New Zealand, that was fine. Yeah, I didn't have an issue with that as a stunt. Like, that that happens a lot in these movies. Like, that's yeah, I mean, you had Burt Reynolds come back in the Adam Sandler version, so yeah. Like stunt yeah, casting. Burt Reynolds is like. Yeah, Taylor Swift in mine. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, that, that, that was, was fun. As, I was looking in, forward to a nice little. Of our group te- texts and previous podcasts. That was funny, but yeah. uh, not a real movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So Tristan, <laughs> um, hopefully you have a real pitch next. What are we doing? And move on to a real movie instead of Longest Yard. Something that's actually good. Uh, we'll go with The Graduate. Okay. All right. So, The Graduate uh, is a classic. It came out in 1967. It starred um, Dustin Hoffman. Um, and uh, the IMDb description is short. It's a disillusioned college graduate finds himself torn between his older lover and her daughter. Um, there's more to it than that, but that's a, a very simple premise. So, Tristan, I'm sorry, who did you say is going first? Uh, Joe can go ahead and go first. All right, All right Joe, Yay. what do you got? All right, so uh, my director is going to be Michael Showalter, who directed The Big Sick, because that's kind of the tone I want to go for. My Benjamin Braddock is going to be Lucas Hedges. Uh, my uh, Skyler is going to be Zoe Deutsch. Uh, my Mrs. Robinson is going to be Margot Robbie. My Mr. Robinson uh, is Dustin Hoffman. And then my Mr. Braddock is Steve Carell, and my Mrs. Braddock is Amy Adams. So... After flunking out of college his final semester, Ben Braddock returns home, telling his family he graduated. During a party to celebrate his graduation, uh, Mrs. Robinson, wife of his father's new law partner, asks him to drive her home. She tries seducing him at her house, and he initially resists before giving in and getting them a hotel. Benjamin spends the time he is supposed to be looking for a job with Mrs. Robinson, who is tired of her loveless marriage. She confesses that this is her third, all of them for money. Ben, while enjoying his time with Mrs. Robinson, wants a real relationship. He starts using one of the dating apps and meets a recent college graduate, Skylar. 
Benjamin dates Skylar while sleeping with Mrs. Robinson. After a few weeks, he brings Skylar over to meet his parents. His parents are excited when they meet her because she is the stepdaughter of his law partner and the daughter of Mrs. Robinson, which Ben had no idea. The next time he sees Mrs. Robinson, she gets angry at him for seeing Skylar. She tells him her story, and that, and this is where my rule comes in because she is Skylar Belfort. Uh, is her daughter from her second marriage to former stockbroker Jordan Belfort, which would make her formerly Naomi Belfort from The Wolf of Wall Street, which is where my rule comes in, uh, using a character from a Martin Scorsese movie. Seeing how angry Naomi is, Benjamin sabotages his next date with Skylar. Skylar runs away in tears, and Ben realizes that he loves her and chases after her. Confessing to her he didn't really graduate college, she confesses that she didn't either. Not long after, the concierge at the hotel Ben takes Naomi to runs into Ben and calls him by the fake name he checks in under. Skylar assumes he is having an affair with a married woman and becomes upset. Wanting to be honest, uh, Ben confesses it's with her mother. Skylar runs away again, however, this time Ben realizes he shouldn't chase her. Later the next night, Ben waits for Naomi at the hotel, but she doesn't arrive. Instead, Mr. Robinson shows up and says Naomi told him what happened and he is never to see his wife or stepdaughter again. He says that Skylar is set up to marry a classmate from Berkeley. A few weeks go by and Ben misses Skylar. He drives over to her house and Naomi said Skylar isn't there. Ah. She is visiting her boyfriend and not to go see her. The next day, Ben drives to Berkeley and finds Skylar's fiance's fraternity brother who says they are getting married that day. He runs to the wedding chapel and stops the wedding. The two run away. Ben orders an Uber and as they hide from the wedding guests and wait for the Uber, the two sit in silence. And that is my pitch. All right. Interesting. Yeah, that's uh, some questions there, some timeline related. Um, Tristan, uh, what do you got for us? Uh, I I love The Graduate. I wanted to change it up a little bit, though, because I think it's a premise that could go quickly awry in 2021 of handling without care. I think we saw in a recent movie that age gaps can be kind of high hot-button issues, so I want to make it a little more... I want to bring in a director who I think can handle complex relationships and complex dynamics between characters really well with a lot of delicacy. And that director is Celine Sciamma, who directed A Portrait of a Lady on Fire. But her work before that especially has been really good as well. I think she knows how to capture people who feel like outsiders in society and want to kind of find a way to blend in through a relationship they form with someone. And the rule that I'm using is that it's all set in one location. I'll get into a little bit more of that as I go along. So after graduating from college at the end of 2019, longtime success story Elon, uh, er, Elaine Brodick, played by Kristen Stewart, is ready to start her meticulously planned life. However, she finds her goals are instantly shattered as COVID-19 rips away her plans and hope for her future life. Now she finds herself stuck at home with no direction and no motivation, unsure of what to do with, what to do with herself. Quickly, though, she finds herself the center of attention of a neighbor, Mrs. Robinson, played by Angelina Jolie, a much older woman whose isolation with her very absent husband has sent her searching for meaning in her aging life. The affair complicates when Elaine begins to fall for Mrs. Robinson's daughter, a rebellious young woman, a recent graduate as well, Nina, played by Zendaya. So Elaine now finds herself torn between the adulthood she desperately wants to be a part of and achieve in Mrs. Robinson and the sort of youthful rebellion that she still wants to hold on to in Zendaya. And we follow this relationship through some slightly similar beats to the original, but because it's all tr set within the single apartment building of Elaine, it's, we can get kind of creative with the setting, and we, the neighbors kind of show up out of the blue and 
Mrs. Robinson shows up and is very assertive, just like in the movie, Mrs. Robinson kind of throws Justin Hoffman's character off because she's very assertive and not what he's not normally used to in, in people. So she kind of shows up, and despite the COVID-19, she's just walking right into the house, and she's very forward with with Elaine and very open about what she wants. And Elaine likes that initially. She's very, she's like, well, look, I'm like a real adult now. I'm out of college. I have this older woman after me. This is kind of cool. But as she meets Zendaya, as she starts to fall for her, fall for someone close to her own age, she realizes this is a little uncomfortable. I'm not sure how I feel about this. And we have a similar kind of falling out where she's hiding it from Nina for a while. And once she reveals it, they Nina storms out and leaves. And Elaine's now stuck in the apartment by herself and kind of coming to grips with her her situation. And Mrs. Robinson, I think, is a fascinating character in the original because she's, like I mentioned in my pitch, she's kind of longing for her own youth in her, in her own way. She's holding on to her past. She's had a very unfulfilled life, and she's kind of scared that she's going to forever be unfulfilled now. In the same way that Dustin Hoffman's character was, they have really interesting character parallels. So I want to have that back in mind where Elaine is this recent college graduate starting to realize that her hopes and dreams aren't quite what they seem to be. And Mrs. Robinson is also this aging woman who had some great plans for her life. And now she's realizing, like, oh, I miss this housewife with this boring, absent husband who doesn't really want to do anything to do with me anymore. I think Angelina Jolie is a great casting. She has that kind of look. You know, she's very entrancing. I think she looks like well, uh, a really intensely attractive older woman. Kristen Stewart has a bit of an agelessness to her, but she has a very confident kind of maturity to her as well. She's 30 years old, so there's, about a, there's a 15 year age gap between Kristen Stewart and Angelina Jolie. Zendaya is uh, 24, so there's a, a five, six year age gap between her and Kristen Stewart. And in the final scene, Elaine and Nina uh, reunite and they decide to flee their isolated life together. Fuck the consequences, we're going to see what happens. And for the first time in the movie, we get them to walk down the stairs and leave the building. That's my pitch. All right. Interesting. Um, so going back to real quick, Michael, Bobby, and I, our younger brother, said on the last pitch that Tristan was robbed and he is unsubscribed. I mean, look, I've all, I'm always been robbed. Every time I pitch, it's better than the other pitch, and I get no, robbed when it. I lose. That's just how it happens. Yeah, you just had the wrong Mitchell brother as a judge. I mean, he just needed to be on the Yeah, podcast. I mean, the judges are corrupt. What are you saying? To be. <laughs> the, um, the thing about Tristan is – no one's ever lost more and had a bigger head about it. <laughs> so um, here's my, I don't know. Um, Bobby, do you have any questions uh, for this? Honestly, nothing specific. Like just things I want to hear him fight. Um, they're two very different pitches. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't want to like lead the arguments right now. Right. Yeah, my one thing is um, for Joe, I don't really have a question about any of the tones or the pitches, but you mentioned um, Tinder, so your movie takes place. Yeah. So in one of the things. Yeah. Age. So one of the things I was gonna say, because I was like debating how to like make Margot Robbie's debating. Do I like recast, but say it's the same thing, put like Charlie Theron? So my thing is basically, because I looked up the real her in real life, and she didn't age like that much. Like she's like fifty plus, but if you looked at her, she looked like thirty five. So I'd like use makeup to make Margot Robbie just look older. That's what I would look do. a little older, but she would be playing like a fifty-year-old yeah. woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How old she would be? Now. Yeah, because okay. yeah, I was like, that, looking at... that was my only question. Yeah, that was the, that was what I that was what I was going to bring up, but I just it didn't fit like in my pitch. But yeah, she would just be made up to look older. All right. Um, 
I'm interested in both, um, so I want to hear you fight it out. So, Tristan, you you start. Why is your your movie better? Well, you just talked about how Joe used Tinder and tried to like slightly modernize his movie, I guess, but mine actually modernizes it. It's set in modern times with modern problems of isolation and people trying to form relationships and figure out their life in this entire year, almost over a year now of isolation that we've been through. I know I was put in quarantine over a year ago today, probably right around there, and it's been a weird year, and I think this captures the weirdness. I think just like the original captured this sort of generation revolt of that era of these young people realizing that the plans their parents set for them aren't what reality is anymore and that times are changing and they can maybe do something of their own, and the sense of youthful rebellion runs all the way through The Graduate, and I wanted to bring that in for mine as well. I think we have a, a lot of sense of youth rebellion right now, people realizing that like what we were sold in society as the goal for life is not really what we're really getting anymore. And I want to get Zendaya uh, as Nina and Elaine as these two kind of rebellious souls trying to go out and face the world. That's exactly what the themes and original ideas of Graduate are without repeating the same beats of it. So I think mine's just a very a perfect remake. Okay. Um, Joe, your response. Yeah, so one of the things that, that modernized mine in a way too is like we have a lot of situations now of like, more college, like college graduates and college age kids are living with their parents now more than ever. I wanted to focus on that show that I know that was in the original, but it's a theme that's carried on and still part of the thing today. And it's like he's basically like, I don't want to look for a job. There aren't jobs available. And instead, he spends his time with this like older woman. And, uh, you know, he's like chasing, you know, fun instead of maybe you know trying to be more productive and trying to do something that and then through her he learns you know maturity and other things like that and through uh the scholar character because i had changed it because that was the character the daughter's name in the wolf of wall street you know he does decide that maybe he should be with someone his own age even if necessarily based on the end of my movie and the end of the original they're not necessarily meant for each other but it's kind of the way his life should go instead of being with someone almost double his age and I feel like with dating apps and stuff like that, I feel like that is the way dating and relationships are headed towards. Yeah, people are still maybe going to meet each other organically, but if in a modern version of a rom-com or in a modern version of a dating movie, I feel like you, if you don't have those as an aspect of it, you're not being accurate to modern dating. And all of that stuff is in mind as well. I mean, she's stuck at home. She's going to be trying to do video calls. She's going to be trying to do calls like we're doing right now. Yeah, but we're I feel like that's modern interaction. Is. I feel like that's modern interaction for now. But like, how long are like video calls going to be, you know, a popular mainstay of society unless you're doing a podcast? Like, how long is the average person going to be sitting doing, you know, a video call a year from now? Probably a lot, man. I mean, this is about twenty. It's about the current day. I want it to be accurate to what's current. I want it to be showing what's really happening right now. It's about her during isolation. I'm going to show what she's really be, what she really would be doing, and maybe it won't be relevant in like a hundred years or whatever. But they're going to get the concept of what this was and the time that it was and the technology that it was. You don't when you watch Graduate now, you're not like, oh wow, but that's not exactly a representation of what my exact life is right now. You see the core themes and you relate to your the core themes of modern day like we look at graduate now and it's very much relevant to today and i think mine sure they might not be doing video calls exactly like this in 20 years but they're going to understand what it's like to be isolated to understand what it's like to need to reach out to use modern technology to reach out i think mine just very much takes the themes of graduate bring them to a modern day brings it to a modern twist i think mine just sounds way way better than joe's does i i just 
mine just modernizes it better. Yeah, I just disagree because I um, think yours is. Bobby, do you need to hear anything else? I don't think so. Let me know what you're feeling on it. I, I know where I'm leaning, um, but yeah, I don't yeah. really have any, you know, major things I want to hear. And Bobby, uh, this was your uh, movie that you chose, so I will uh, just kind of give you my thoughts on it. Um, this was another close one. Uh, this was closer to like the first one. Um, I was split. I went a couple different directions. What to me it came down uh, because while I like Tristan's cast a lot, I would go see Kristen Stewart and Angelina Jolie and Zendaya all be in a film. I think that would be fantastic, especially with the relationships. And I love your director. Um, Fortune of a Lady on Fire is one of the most beautiful, gorgeous films I've ever seen. The cinematography is brilliant. Um, I don't like the idea of limiting um, your director, uh, Celine Siama, to such an enclosed environment because I think you take away some of the strong aspects of her other films. Um, she's also a costume designer. That's kind of how she came up. So I think you kind of limit what she can really do with a lot of that by isolating uh, your cast the way you did. Joe, um, I think your cast is pretty good. Um, I like Lucas Hedges. Um, I liked the creative usage of your uh, Scorsese rule um, for uh, Margot Robbie's character from Wolf of Wall Street. And what it came down to, I think, for me in the end was when you look back at like the last like huge thing that affected the world in the United States was the um, the housing collapse in 2008 um, around that time that compares kind of to, to COVID. And if they made a bunch of movies in 2008 and 2009 about the housing collapse, they wouldn't have held up because you didn't really capture everything that was going on. So I do think there's a way to make movies about COVID and what we've experienced over the last year, but I think in five years we're going to get a lot of those films that really encapsulate what that was going through once everything is kind of encapsulated, and I'm not really interested in seeing any of the movies related to isolation and COVID for the next, like, two years. I want to see how things shake out. I want to see people get away from this mindset. Like, this has been a very stressful time in everybody's lives for the last year. The last thing I think anyone wants to do is go see a film about that, so... That being said, I'd go with Joe just because I think even using, like, Tinder and stuff, that holds up a little better than um, a film made, like, while that is still happening. Like, there's no vaccines out yet. Like, there's this is still very much in the prime of it. I think Tristan's movie in four or five years maybe um, is more relevant. Um, and I think right now it's too, too relevant to actually encapsulate everything. So that was my only really deciding factor because I was so close on it. So I'd go Joe, but ever so slightly. Yeah, I was really close as well. Um, I was favoring Tristan for a while, and then I was favoring Joe, and kind of went back and forth. Um, Joe's at first sounded too much of a repeat of the original. Like it was very, it was, it was you know, t told the same story, but and Tristan's changed it up. But the more I thought about Tristan's movie and how it would actually play out and look, um, and like you said with the director, I mean, I haven't seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire, but I know that the cinematography in that is praised and everything so good enough that she could choice. make an enclosed location look really good that's yeah. why i picked her i picked her because i think she could despite a limited location she could bring out the most of it cinematically yeah and and i don't mind that like this one was really close for me it was a 51 49 kind of like the first battle but this time i think i am leaning joe just because he does he modernized it enough and it's a story <laughs> that i think needs to be retold 
if it's going to be retold, it needs to be in a context that's going to hold up longer than just a COVID movie, because um, it was a it's a classic, um, and I'd like the the newer version of this classic to kind of hold the same water in a way. And, and I think Joe's is is the one that would do that for the modern age. Uh, so that's that's where Ed. I'm going, and Joe is going to take the lead. Nice. Yeah, and then, well, this um, is the one I was again, like second most nervous about. So. I can't believe that that was such a bad pitch compared to mine. Mine is significantly better than Joe's. That was one of the worst calls I've had on the show in any match I've been on. Well, you know, I mean, you can try and say that, but I just watched Malcolm and Marie or whatever the fuck that movie was, and that movie sucked ass. And it looked beautiful being inside a house. What does that even have so to do with this? There's a one cast member in it that's similar. The similar thing is the single location, the inside a house. Like, especially after just seeing that, I don't need to limit a great director to such a small area because honestly there aren't very many good movies made like that like setting in one location is interesting if it's in a more interesting location but but seeing people trapped in a house like how often is that actually successful other than like you have a good director and a good cast and a good story that you're telling it in you have a good you have that in the movie i just explained and that movie sucked yeah um we do have a comment. I don't know if you And that. Yeah, so Michael um, said that Joe's correct about modern dating. He met his girlfriend on an app. Um, and then one of my best friends, Tara, is getting married, and she met uh, her fiancé on an app, too. So I think yeah. Joe's... Uh, yeah, my roommates it. are engaged, and without, they met on an without, app. So Yeah, that's such a common thing now. If you're going to make The Graduate, I think modernizing it in dating is better than modernizing it because of like the time frame it's in. I don't think it's very modern to just meet the person next door and start a relationship. That's very old school, and it doesn't fit with the COVID times. Um, so that's kind of my feelings on it. But again, it was close. It was really um, close. They were, it was, and they were honestly, I didn't it. think I didn't think either pitch was very good. So Tristan can bitch and moan about mm-hmm. his, but his mine was objectively was good. Worse. I mean, if you know the graduate, it's good. But all right. Yeah, you made a shitty version of it. So <laughs> I made a great version thing. of it. Johnny um, made a this Joe made the same premise but worse. And he said, Oh, but there's Tinder now. Okay, really great modernization there. You and, and use Tinder. Great, great work. Tristan, you can keep bitching, it's not gonna get you the point. Um so uh let's move on Tristan, to something yeah, else. Yeah, what do you got next? Uh I'll go with Moulin Rouge, something that I know a little bit I know pretty well. You probably know that better than any of us because I can yep. tell you right now, I don't know what the fuck Moulin Rouge really is. It's a very wild. It is wild. I, I watched it. I well, I don't know if Tristan rewatched it, but I might be the other than him the most recent person to see it. So, well, let's see. Based on the picture Tristan sent us in the group chat, I think he might have just recently rewatched it, like yesterday. So, oh, I missed that. All right, <laughs> I'm interested to uh, to see Moulin Rouge. It came out in 2001. Um, Starring Nicole Kidman, Ewan McGregor, was a Baz Luhrmann film. Um, he's extremely hit or miss, but I think the consensus on this was it was a hit for the most part. Um, so it is about a poet uh, that falls for a beautiful uh, courtesan whom a jealous duke covets. So that is uh, the simple premise of it from IMDb. Um, Tristan, who did you say was going first? Joe, you can go first this time again. All right. So... I'll just start by saying my director is Frank Oz because I'm casting this as a 1980s movie uh, at this point, and uh, specifically uh, 1986. 
At this point, he'd done Little Shop of Horrors and uh, Dark Crystal. So my role of Christian, uh, which was the Ewan McGregor role, is going to be played by Prince. Uh, my Satine, uh, is gonna be, his love interest, is going to be played by Carrie Fisher. Harold Zidler, kind of the you know, ruler of or head of Moulin Rouge, is going to be played by David Bowie. Uh, my Duke, the guy that Satine's promised to, is going to be played by Patrick Swayze. And then my Henry Toulouse-Lautrec is going to be played by Gerard Depardieu. And so basically what I think the problem with this movie is, is it was just like too stylized. Like I want to keep basically the same story. Like the guy meets a, you know, courtesan or basically an escort who is promised to another uh, man. And then he and her put on a show and then the the Duke finds out that the show is an allegory for her love story with another guy and he gets mad and tries to break it off. And then it turns out she's sick and she's going to die. And it's basically, I want to keep that same central story. I wasn't going to rewrite out the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, like I said, I feel like the story is too stylized to the point that it was distracting from the story, but I still feel like with Frank Oz and Prince and David Bowie, especially in the eighties, you can have it be a little weird and a little strange, but instead of just like digital effects and like, weird shaky editing you can kind of keep all of that weird and strangeness in camera so i'm just going to keep it that way uh and then instead of a jukebox musical it's just going to be all original songs written by bowie and prince and that's my pitch okay all right um i love prince and david bowie uh tristan what do you got for us Interesting uh, uh Johnny went with the 80s rule because I also I'm went also, with the 80s rule. My name's rule, not Johnny guess... either. Uh, Joe, sorry, you guys are just both losers, so I can't <laughs> tell who is who anymore. Check the scoreboard. <laughs> well, my I brought in the director, uh, Terry Gilliam, who was pretty active in the 80s. That was early in his career, I think. Like Joe said, the movie's a little overwhelming in style, but I think Terry Gilliam can have that edge of a little bit of style without being like so much that you're like, what am I even looking at right now? So I think Terry Gilliam could bring in some of the style that made the original unique, but without being overwhelming with style. And my lead is David Bowie. And he's playing a rock all-star or a wannabe rock all-star who's moving, who just moved from London to Paris in 1899 because he wants to break out and be a hit uh, rock musician. And he's, He's uh, he goes and tries to get a role at the Moulin Rouge for their 1899 New Year's Eve performance, and when he's there, he happens into a supporting performance in a musical number similar to the first movie, and he falls in love with the courtesan, the lady of the night, the all-star woman that everyone's in love with, uh, Madonna, and Madonna is not a very prominent actress in the movie. David Bowie's definitely in the lead, but I think Madonna has the star power to really like bring people into the seats in the eighties and to help with her and Bowie are doing the soundtrack together. So it would be a really fun kind of like Bowie's at the height of his like rock pop all stardom at this point in his career. So I think he would bring a lot of really great rock pop edge and Madonna can add some of that pop fun to it, but you definitely have that Bowie rock edge keeping it together too. So you have this original 80s kind of rock pop anthem soundtrack and the muscle of the uh and we find out that uh madonna is in love with a or not in love but she's in she's promised to the owner of the theater and she says oh i can't leave him because i need him to keep me financially afloat and that leader of theaters played by emilio estevez coming off of breakfast club uh 
he's kind of he's a good looking guy but i think he could fit well into this role of like a handsome guy who thinks he can get everything he wants because of his good looks but he's not necessarily a nice guy and the muscle that Emilio Estevez hires on to be sort of his protector of the theater is played by Bruce Willis. And I have this coming out in 1988. So it's a little bit later than Joe's, I believe. It's right at the point where Bruce Willis was finishing up Moonlighting and kicking off Die Hard. So he's right in like a big role in his, his career. So I think my cast is really interesting. I follow, like Joe did, I follow the same kind of beats of the original there. In love, but they're in secret. And... I changed it up a little bit. Mine's not a writer. He's sort of a wannabe rock star, so he likes to perform. He likes to be at center stage, and they perform these songs together, these romantic songs to, for this big performance. And in secret, they're really in love. So we have this sort of, they're performing on stage together, these love songs, while trying to keep their passion a secret. And same beats as the first one. Uh, she's sick. She's not sure what's going on. Uh, she's just kind of getting ill. She's coughing. She's passing out. And at the end, they decide to uh, leave the theater behind, have a life to themselves, and to run away in this final moment, but then tragically she passes away, and David Bowie's character has to go on without her, and he writes the most epic uh, music possible as his like tribute to her in the last scene. He's like, oh, here's my final collection of songs dedicated to Steen. And that's my pitch for Moulin Rouge. It's a big, fun 80s rock pop musical with David Bowie and Madonna, all stars of the 80s music scene, who could really elevate this movie to something really fun really ridiculous something that i think would hold up to today and be something that people would watch back as a nice fun cheesy 80s musical and that's my pick all right um bobby you got any questions yeah i have a question for each of them uh joe uh tristan described like the exact style of music that's going to be in this movie can you kind of you just said it's, it's written by prince and david bowie but is it in their like modern yeah. at that time style or yeah is it the throwback uh, it's like they're it basically be their type of music they were doing at that time. That's what I was going for. Okay. Uh, and then for Tristan, um, you kind of said Madonna is in the Nicole Kidman role, but is a small part, and she's a pretty big part of the original. So how is that going to affect your storytelling? Because even though Ewan McGregor in the first one is kind of the framing device, like he's your main character and he's you know writing about it, but um, she's kind of a co-lead. So how did you change that for your movie? Yeah, she's not a small part. She's like the she's just a supporting character. You know, I definitely have Bowie as the main focus, the main uh, direction to the story, and I think Madonna has her good scenes. And I think in Nicole Kidman, you particularly have that scene where uh, she's first confronting the Duke, and Ian McGregor's hiding in the room, and she's having this big, like, really comedic moment between her and the Duke. And I think Madonna could pull that off, and I think that would be like a fun role for her to have these comedic moments in that movie are something that people kind of forget about. And I think Madonna could really pull off the kind of comedic fun of those ridiculous moments. Like when Ewan McGregor's coming in there and he's reading her the poetry and she's acting all turned on about it. And I think that would be really fun to see Madonna doing it. You know, Madonna rolled around on the stage in a wedding dress. So she likes to have that kind of like fun sexiness to her. And I think that role for Nicole Kidman is very much that it's like a fun sexiness and very empowering, but also very fun and entertaining and i think madonna can pull that off really well for me okay johnny do you have any questions my only question um is for tristan this would have come out two years after the return of bruno um is bruce willis singing or playing any jazz instruments in your film he sings in the way that you mcgregor does he basically talks on pitch like you mcgregor does <laughs> but you know it's passable singing in that movie it's not it's not something great 
Bruce Willis has maybe like his couple lines in his songs, you know, but he's not singing the solo. You know, he has like, oh, he comes in for like the one or two lines of song to make his plot in the scene known, but he's not leading any songs. Okay. All right. Got it. Um, yeah, that being said, uh, Tristan, because I was just talking to you, you start, why is your film superior to Joe's? I think David Bowie and Madonna together would be something I'd really love to see. They're both just huge, huge icons of that moment. At that moment, of course, you have Prince, who you can't really argue against Prince. But I think David Bowie and Madonna have of two different appeals that would bring audiences together. You have Madonna for like the pop crowd that would bring in like the dance crowd, and then you have David Bowie, who is more of the rock crowd. But at this point, he came out with Let's Dance and a couple of those much more popular hits. So I think it would be fun for him as well to get into this like hybrid of pop and rock and work with madonna who's a pop all-star to make himself really known as like not just the rock guy but also kind of a pop hit guy so i think it would be fun to see them blend their styles together you can tell david bowie in this era of his music was into that so i think it would be great to see him get a chance to experiment and give us another iconic album from bowie and a soundtrack album with that all right so basically my thing is like we could talk about soundtracks all day it basically comes down to Prince or Madonna. But this isn't soundtrack change-up. This is movie change-up. And I feel like when I'm watching a movie, the more interesting dynamic for me is a late 20s Prince, you know, going against a mid-30s Patrick Swayze than a 41-year-old David Bowie going up against the 26, you know, with his antagonist being a 26-year-old Emilio Estevez. Like, I feel like if I watch that, especially if, if you have David Bowie being like, oh, I want to be this, you know, young rock star when he's 41 years old, and then his big antagonist he's going against is a 26-year-old Emilio Estevez, I feel like it's just not going to be as interesting a, a dy dynamic of a movie as a p compared to Prince versus Patrick Swayze. I think I picked him because he's young. I think he has that, like, young arrogance that you get from, like, this rich owner of a theater who thinks he can get everything he wants because he's young and he's moderately good-looking and he's rich. So I picked him because he has a, a dramatic age difference between the rest of the characters. So it's very off-putting. You very obviously know that uh, Satine's not interested in being with this kind of a guy out for any romantic reason. It would only be financial. I think that's something that is present in the script of the original, but not necessarily in the casting. So I think casting him as somebody who's totally out of their age range and not necessarily something that Madonna would be invested in being with outside of financial gain fits that role really well. I pick, I think... David Bowie, Madonna being separate styles makes it more interesting than Prince and Bowie, who were fairly similar in their genres of music. I think having two very, very opposing musical voices in a movie like this makes it very interesting. And that's why I went with two voices who are very different in music, have some crossover, but not necessarily in the same genre. I think that's more interesting than uh, Bowie and Prince, as much as I would love to see get more Prince music. I think Prince, I think... Um, Bowie and Madonna together would make interesting music that would be very beneficial to a musical. So I went with them because I think they could create and performances too. They would just be great to see together. Yeah, I mean, I think Bowie and Prince would have great performances too. And I also feel like in my movie, Carrie Fisher, who can sing, is a better, is a far better actress than Madonna, especially in 1988 when Madonna had only been in one movie and Carrie Fisher was coming off the biggest, you know, three years removed from the biggest franchise of all time. You know, she could still make an entertaining movie while also singing in the movie. And I, I don't know, Madonna, at that time, her performance might be bad enough to take me out of the movie. 
I think I, I cast her because she's in line with Nicole Kidman's role in the original. Nicole Kidman is a great actress, but that performance is, is very kind of fun and spontaneous and strange. And I think Madonna could bring in that kind of energy. And I think she also has like the sex symbol goddess appeal that you'd give to that kind of a cortisone character, someone that everybody in the crowd would just be dying to hook up with. You know, she's like this golden blonde model type body she's very much like the sex symbol of the 80s i think that is sex symbol of the 80s i have really carrie well. fisher you know that was like the big you know sex sex symbol of like the late 70s and the 80s of like that was i mean like, sure in for like 30 years that movie. was like the iconic sex symbol for nerds was carrie fisher as princess as, as slave leia sure for nerds but i don't think nerds are going to see moulin rouge moulin rouge is for like if you carrie fisher's in it they'll go people. see it Sure, but I'm making a good movie, not just one that people are going to go see. I'm making one that will have pop music appeal, one that will have great soundtrack music, one that will have great musical music. M- musicals uh, lean towards pop kind of styles and their storytelling and their lyrics, and I think that's something that Madonna would pull off really well. And I think Bowie gives you that rock edge to give you that kind of Bowie Prince edge you're trying to go for, but I think Madonna humanizes it a little bit, gives it that pop funness. So I just think my two leads are just way more dynamic and way musically especially more interesting i just disagree right, i don't I know I've I've yeah okay heard enough on that you guys have gone back and forth on yeah. pretty much everything i think you need to yeah. um bobby you're the one who chose this so you're going to be the main judge um so my thing with it is obviously i'll go see any movie prince is in i love like under the cherry moon even though that movie is terrible i love it for prince but my thing is, um, I do think that kind of clashes with the rest of Joe's movie having Prince and Bowie in it. I think it would have been stronger as just a solo um, Prince film um, to, to kind of do that. I don't love them paired together, even though I love both Bowie and Prince. I think Bowie was actually like a legitimately good actor, um, and I loved every performance he's done. But I don't need to see that mix with like Purple Rain, which... It by no means is a well-acted or good movie, but I love it to death because I love the music. I love Prince. He is very entertaining. Um, but I just think Tristan, while I'm not as big of a fan of Madonna, um, she's actually had some good performances in her career, like, uh, um, what is it, a No Crying in Baseball, a League of Their Own, um, she's good in. So, you know, I think if you're going to pair Bowie with someone, you put it with someone who can sing and, and act well, um, and I kind of liked his dynamics he had there. I think Terry Gilliam is a stronger um, director. While I like some of Frank Oz's work, I'm not a huge fan. Um, and I'm more of a fan of like Brazil and films like that. So I think Tristan just pitched a better movie, even though I think Joe's would have the music that I'd listen to more. Um, all in all, like Joe said, this isn't soundtrack change-up, this is movie change-up. I'm going to see the film that I want to see more, and that's Tristan's. So, Bobby, that's where I'd go if I was judging. Where, where yeah. do you think? And what it came down to for me is I think that, um, like Tristan had a stronger, uh, between a stronger relationship, I think that would be a better dynamic between the two leads, um, like the male and female lead in the movie. Uh, because I think that Madonna does portray exactly what Nicole Kidman does in that movie, which is the sultry kind of sexiness at the time. Um, and Carrie Fisher is kind of that strong willed you know badass woman more she did have a sexiness to her but that wasn't her her character that's not what she played she was more either funny in movies or kind of the badass you know take it do her do it herself type character um that's not really what that character is to me 
Um, but Joe's had the better character, better, you know, villain and lead um, relationship to it. So to me, it became what is more important to that movie for me. And to me, it's the relationship between the, in the original Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman. Um, I think that drives the movie, and I think that is what um, you're, you need to be invested in. Uh, and I think that to get those characters right is more important to me. And I do think Madonna adds a different layer to the musical element um, so it's not as samey. You're going to get a different type of music throughout the movie. So uh, I'm going with Tristan. It was close, but it, it came down to who casted each you know, each role better. Okay. Yeah. So far, I mean, other than Tristan just basically trolling on the one pitch, everything has been very, very close tonight. Um, so I'm interested, especially because, like, that one, same rule choice, it's always up in the air anytime that happens, and you got to really – nitpick why one is stronger than the others but yeah i haven't seen moulin rouge um i don't think all the way through so bobby was the right one to make that call because i don't know much about the character dynamics um joe uh you uh you lost that brings us to two two i believe yep if tied i'm it up. tied it up all right i like these back and forth episodes more interesting than if someone just you know pulls a johnny and just blows someone out of the water from the start um even though I love doing that. Uh, Joe, what are we going next? Uh, who went first last time? Uh, you went first last time. All right, yeah, we'll do Driving Miss yep. Daisy, and then you can go first. Yeah, and we do have a comment, Johnny. If you, I don't know if you saw that or not, based on our last pitches there. All right, so Dylan said Kelly LeBrock was an 86 symbol. I do agree. That would have been a good pitch. I have no idea if she can sing, though. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it was in my mind. I went with Madonna just because of the musical angle, but that would have been a good pick. Yeah, for sure. And Madonna fits well with Bowie. I, mm-hmm. I think like yep. that, putting Bowie with like a huge female sex symbol like a Kelly Brock would be off-putting because I don't picture David Bowie with someone like that. He'd be more like a obscure someone like Madonna. I think works well. Um, so Joe, you said Tristan's going yep. first for Driving Miss Daisy. Yep. All right. So Driving Miss Daisy came out in 1989. Um, I believe it's the worst film to ever win Best Picture. I hate this movie. Um, so I'm interested to see you guys do something interesting with it. Um, it starred um, uh, Morgan Freeman. Uh, and this is how it is described on IMDb. An old Jewish woman and her African-American chauffeur in the American South have a relationship that grows and improves over the years. Yeah, real interesting story, that one. So... Tristan, uh, please tell me you improved upon this uh, film. I hope I did, because that original movie is pretty terrible. People really roasted Green Book, and I thought Green Book was bad, but this is essentially a Green Book, but, like, what, 20 years earlier? <laughs> yeah. If not longer. And this is, it very much had that Green Book energy of, like, we're going to talk about race, but not really. You know, it's going to be the most lightweight possible way to comment on race. We're going to be like, oh, what if racism is bad? And then the whole crowd claps at the end. Like, wow, you guys and- solved it. And just like Green Book, this one beat uh, one of Spike Lee's best films. Green Book beat Black Klansman, and this one uh, beat Do the Right Thing. So, yeah, Spike Lee's got to be sick of these Oscar voting. Yeah, I, I tried to actually kind of address that, and I brought in uh, Tyler Perry to be my director. That's my choice that I use for this movie. It's going to be a Tyler Perry movie. I think Tyler Perry is definitely obviously known for his comedy, but he's acted and produced a good amount of dramas. And he's also a pretty uh, strong activist of philanthropist. He speaks out a lot, especially in the last year or so, about Black Lives Matter. But the reason that I picked him in particular is 
not just because he's a voice in the BLM movement, but because he's spoke about the complexities of it and sort of called out like the far activists who are going a little bit too far in his mind and a little overboard with their their attacks and their violence and their their stances. So I think he's an interesting voice to bring in because I decided to make my entire cast black, including Miss Daisy. And I wanted to use this as a way to address division, not within between black and white people. We've seen that done a thousand times over in movies like this. I want it to be division within a race, uh, people who have different views on how to solve problems and how to move forward as a race and how to fight uh, some of the systemic issues we see in our in our, our country versus just moving forward with your own life. So my cast here, the driver, uh, Hoke, I think the name was in the original movie, is played by John David Washington. Hoke's uh, best friend and kind of confidant is played by Keith Stanfield. And my Miss Daisy is played by Angela Bassett. And Daisy's nephew, who kind of is the the middle ground that hooks them up together, uh, is Tyler Perry himself. He likes to play kind of small roles in these movies he produces, so it would be a good fit for him. So I wrote in here, the original movie sucks ass. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tyler Perry, though, he's not just a producer, director, he's an activist. I think he can bring a good voice perspective to this. We follow, I guess, similar premise beats to the original, where it, He's a driver. He's assigned to drive around this old woman who's experienced uh, her whole... He's kind of uh, experienced old-school Rush Limbaugh-style racism. Rest in peace, brother. Uh, he has conversations uh, in his drive. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Try to get through the I never, I never thought I'd hear Tristan say no. something like that. <laughs> So her conversations with Hook are similar to a lot of the ones people have been having today. Like, how do we solve these problems? What is too far? And she has this kind of uh, old school wisdom of like, hey, I've gone through segregation. I've gone through the civil rights movement. I'm not this some kid coming into the world now wanting it to be the way that I want it to be. I'm someone who's experienced real tension or real problems. And we have John David Washington who plays kind of this suited up young guy who thinks he solves everything and knows all the answers. And rather than like, the black person serving the white person's arc like it is in the original movie. I think both of these characters can have arcs together, like John David Washington as being rather inexperienced as as a person. He's young, he's naive, he's driven and passionate, but he's not necessarily has the experience to back it up, and he can kind of grow as a person throughout the story as well. He can become someone who understands the complexities of the issues and, and whether or not he completely and totally changes his views, he understands some of the people who disagree with him. And we have Angela Bassett, who's this old, kind of frisky, fighting older woman who, through her relationship with John David Washington, learns to soften up and learns to understand younger people. I think more than ever right now, we have this big divide between generations, like older generations, younger generations. So I think having that com- that that conflict between the, a younger person and an older person, and then ultimately them both being able to see the good in each other, while also working together to uh, try and fight for change in society. That's something that I think Driving Miss Daisy tried to do, but didn't necessarily pull off well. So I wanted to do what Driving Miss Daisy thought it was doing, but actually do it well with a competent director, someone who, and some really good actors, and just really take the concept of Driving Miss Daisy and actually make it good, which is what I was hoping to do with this remake. So that's my pitch to Mozart this year years. I wonder if you the same rule or not. Uh, we did not. I used the rule that you had already used. So, All right? Are you done? Yeah, yep. Joe. Let's hear it. All right. So, so, I'm done. 
All right, so my director is going to be uh, Regina King, who's coming off directing One Night in Miami, which is being pretty highly praised right now. My Hope Colburn is going to be played by Leslie Odom Jr., who was also in One Night in Miami. And then my Daisy Worthen is going to be played by Ellen Burstyn, who was in Requiem for a Dream and uh, Interstellar and you know a lot of other movies and TV shows. So in 1963, Hope is hired as a driver for the old widower Daisy. The movie starts with Hope getting in the car for the first time because the entire movie takes place in a single location, the car, which is the rule I'm using. The movie starts with Daisy saying microaggressions that bother Hoke, but he just lets slide. Things like, you're a good driver for someone like you. Through conversations Daisy has on the phone and with Hoke, we learn she is well-connected. Her nephew is the sheriff and her cousin's son, and her, her nephew is the sheriff and her cousin's son owns the factory that employs most of the town. Daisy tells Hoke he is doing a good job and lets him use the car. Daisy tells Hoke he is doing a good job and lets him use her nice car for a date. While on the date, he gets pulled over. The cop says the car was reported stolen. Hoke says it is a misunderstanding and his boss lets it, let him use the car. Daisy calls the police station and clears everything up. The next day, Daisy asks how the date went and Hoke rolls his eyes. Daisy says with a smirk she didn't want a good driver like him to get away and now that his record has him potentially stealing his boss's car, it will be harder for him to get hired. Over time, Daisy takes up more and more of Hoke's time, forcing him to work 14-hour days, 7 days a week. She threatens him any time he says he might find other work, saying he doesn't want to risk her car getting stolen again, does he? Hoke's relationship with his girlfriend is rocky. She says he spends too much time working rather than with her. Daisy says from now on, Hoke can live in the guest house, and he probably shouldn't bother with a girlfriend. Hoke moves in, and things only get worse. He asks for a week's vacation, and Daisy says he doesn't get one. She needs him to drive her. Hoke yells at her, saying her treatment is unfair. The next day, Hoke gets in the car, and he is bruised up. Daisy asked him what happened. Hoke said that the cops suspected him of holding drugs, but apparently they had the wrong place. Hoke says this will be the last day he drives. He will face the consequences. He doesn't care. He wants out no matter what. Daisy asks if he's sure, and Hoke says yes. Daisy said that's interesting, considering his father's pension checks come from the factory, and it would be a shame if those stopped coming. His mother is a maid for one of her closest friends, and she is getting older. They may want a younger maid soon. His girlfriend works at the bakery she frequents. If she and all of her friends stopped going, the bakery may lose business and they would have to lay people off. Hoke loses it. He looks at a tree off in the distance and floors it with a tear streaming down his face, slamming into the tree at full speed, releasing him of Miss Daisy's control. And then I used the, this rule because I wanted the audience to feel trapped in the car the same way Hoke does, and that is my pitch. Okay. All right, you both obviously changed the movie up quite a bit. Uh, made both uh, a little more enticing than the original. So, uh, Bobby, do you have any questions for him? Honestly, no. I just kind of want to hear him fight it out because I, I don't want to – this is one I, – I kind of have things that I want answered, but I don't really want to lead the arguments in this case because it's very close for me, and I don't have any major issues. So that's where I'm, I'm good with him just fighting it out. Yeah, um, this was one that Bobby and I chose um, together, so, so we will both be judging. So hopefully we can come to a consensus on this one. And it sounds like both of us are pretty split. Um, I will start by just saying, I know you talked about his activism, Tristan, but Tyler Perry um, doing a such a, a dramatic uh, film what in his like filmography uh, made you decide to go like a dramatic route uh, for his directing style? 
I think because he's been a producer on a good amount of uh, well-regarded movies, I think he likes to go out and, and be a, a producer on like low-budget uh, black movies and give them like the bigger budget they need to take off. And so I think that's something that he does a lot. Like from his list of production on IMDb, I could tell. I looked up a lot of interviews for him, and he said he's interested in doing some dramatic work. He's just never really found like the time or the means to really go into it and do it. So I think giving him a chance to do that was a is a that's something he he'd enjoy. And I think Daisy, driving with Daisy is a good option for that for him to do it. Okay, and then real quick too, just because our audience might need this addressed. Um, Tristan, Paul uh, two twenty said Angela Bassett isn't old enough to need a driver; she can drive herself. Well, the whole point for me is like she doesn't need to a driver she's just old and rich and wants someone to drive her you know like rich people don't need a driver they just want a driver <laughs> you know yeah. that's that's what i thought i figured we'd just at least uh, leave yeah. that in because yeah. the, the audience might be asking that question yeah, and i did look it up um, she's 62 so it's like yeah she's yeah. definitely young enough that she could drive but it's on that border to be like well i'm just old and don't want to anymore like i just I and if someone to. can do prosthetics to make someone look older it's tyler perry i believe that, yeah. that too so if you that need to true. you can he loves adding you know prosthetics and making people look like an old woman even if it's himself um all right so fight it out we'll give you guys like five minutes uh and then some more time if we can't come to a consensus but uh i'm interested to see what you guys have to say about yours and about uh the other person's well i think joe picked like a rule you can pick for this movie because obviously like the one where they're in a car for like 90 percent of the movies the one where they're going to be in one location the whole time so, like, I, I feel like you got to be a little bit more creative than that with your rule choice. I mean, I, I, I connected like my Joe's rule use to my theme of my almost, movie. The I mean, in, like, one sentence, kind of, but I think you have to be more creative than just, oh, they're in the same, she's in the car, so that has to be the one setting. Like, I think there's more interesting rules you could use for this, and I think Tyler Perry is an interesting rule for it. I think it goes back to the themes that the original tried to do but failed on, and I think it really can have a chance to deliver on those themes, and... We have Lakeith Stanfield as the best friend, who I think is Tyler Perry's ability to get a little bit of comedy into this drama. You know, like something to lighten the tension a little bit. Lakeith Stanfield has history in comedy. He can be kind of funny, but he can also be dramatic. And I think having him be uh, John David Washington's like go-to guy saying, man, are you, you can't believe what this lady said to me today. And he's calling him on the phone and seeing him and telling him about it. And they have this kind of comedic relationship and back and forth where he's like the best friend that he talks to. I think... I use my rule better than you did. Yours sounds like Green Book too, by the way. It sounds like a white lady who's like helping people, and he's it's like, oh, she let him use the car, and now they have this quirky relationship where she no, says that, like, that she, racially no, that's not exactly. She let him use the car to force him to get pulled over. She set him up when she let him use the car. She was not being nice when she let him use the car. It wasn't like, a, oh, I'm gonna be nice and let you use the car for the date. She let him use the car, and then she reported her own car stolen to get him in trouble, to force him so he couldn't get a job anywhere else. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be nice and let him use the car. And my movie, and you said, oh, I didn't creative use the rule. In my, in no way, shape, or form in the original does Morgan Freeman feel like trapped in the car, like he can't go anywhere else. In my movie, I wrote my movie in a way so that he feels trapped in his job. He feels trapped in this car. He feels trapped in this life, and he can't get out. And then at the end of the movie, he decides to take his only option left because if he doesn't take this option, he's just forced to be in this car essentially until either this lady dies or he dies. So I feel like I did creatively use the rule. I used the rule in an interesting way. I wasn't just like, oh, it's all in one car because whatever. I connected it to the theme of the movie. I connected it to how people 
in their jobs and then their lives can feel trapped and so i and setting the audience so the audience is in the car the entire time can help them connect to that theme and that idea so i feel like i yes i did creatively use it i wasn't just like eh, it's a car they can be in the car the whole time i connected it to the themes and the motives and all of the you know ideas of the movie and one thing that i like about mine is that i changed up the traits of the characters and i didn't make it just like old lady and black guy i made it more a little more interesting i think if you want to come on race i think we've kind of move beyond like oh white people versus black people and maybe we shouldn't be racist anymore and aren't white people bad and i think we need it's interesting more so to get into like the complexities and the specifics of how do we fix these problems and what and like how do people view these problems and talking about them in a movie like this is something that i think tyler perry could do and his experience as a philanthropist his experience as an activist could give him a chance to speak out i think that fits really well for driving miss daisy i think I took the racial politics of the movie that they tried to address and I modernized them and made them in a much more interesting way, I think a much more effective way. Yeah, I feel like your discussion of like how to handle things moving forward and all that would be almost like a more interesting just public speaking event to go to. And I don't, I don't know if like necessarily just watching these characters discuss that would be interesting enough as a movie, especially in Tyler's Perry's hands, who's not exactly known for like his Oscar winning, you know, directing work to handle these topics in a way that's creative and nuanced and also interesting and can hold your attention for two plus hours. Well, I think it'd hold my attention because they're not in the car the whole time. <laughs> it can hold my attention because he's going out and he's interacting with other characters. He's seeing the world and he's, we're seeing how his interaction with Miss Daisy is influencing the relationship in his life. He's changing the way he's talking to the people. And we're seeing how his, his life is being directly affected by his relationship with this woman in a way that he never thought that it would be. I think getting him out of that car and getting him to interact with other characters is the best way to change it up. And you give the elements of comedy to it too with Keith Stanfield. I just think it's an interesting dynamic between the characters. I really think Tyler Perry is poised for a dramatic premiere. And I think this would be a good shot for him. Uh, I mean, my movie too, is you have different characters coming into the car. Like you have his girlfriend when they're on the date and you have the other people because he can be in the car and they can be driving through the town and talking with other people and still be in the car. It doesn't, you know, it's not just those two people the entire time for two hours and you can have interesting conversations in my movie as well. It's just, you're watching the downward spiral of this guy and you know, this woman's control over him, which I feel like has connections to when I set my movie in 1963 and then to modern day too of people feeling trapped in their jobs and people, you know, in you know, low income situations and people maybe because of the race or whatever feeling trapped. And I feel like my movie can connect with anybody. I just think mine connects with the audience that Tyler Perry wants to connect to. This is, I don't think the reason that green book and stuff fails is because they try to connect with everybody. They try to be, a movie for everyone. They don't want to be too offensive. They don't want to be too political. They don't want to be too this or that. And it ends up just being like a whitewashed, like heartless, soulless kind of thing that I'm sure has a decent message in its core themes. Like driving Miss Daisy at its core themes is like, oh, what if we treated people nice or whatever? And it's like, I guess that's a good core message. But if you're trying so hard to make that mass appeal, it's not going to really resonate with anyone. And you look like a driving Miss Daisy now, which I think did go for that. Let's appeal for everyone. Let's try and get everybody in the theater. And it ends up just being like very milquetoast and very yeah, I mean, kind of not direct. I feel, feel like we can both agree way. on that, that the original Driving Miss Daisy is boring and dumb and, you know, pointless and why it won an award. 
Uh, Johnny, I think you're muted. My mic, my mic yeah. is muted. Um, unless there's something you guys feel no. like you really need to say again that hasn't been addressed, I don't know if there really is anything. I think Bobby and I have come to Yeah, we, we've been, we've been discussing, you know, behind the scenes about what we're feeling about it. So um, yeah. I'll just give my thoughts real quick. I think Johnny's leaning the same way I am, so I'll just kind of let him make the final, final call. But um, honestly, I think Joe picked a way – like. You know, obviously Tristan used the rule of Tyler Perry, but you picked a way better director that could actually get themes across. But I think your movie sounds a little bit too bland as far as the storytelling uh, and the, the rule choices. It, you know, it works for this movie, but I don't, I don't think it's the most creative way to use it. Um, but really, it's just the story you're telling, I don't think is as impactful and it is a little bit more in that green book kind of realm. Uh, and Tristan is telling a, a more interesting story with his, for sure, uh, definitely a way to modernize it. Um, I was really struggling with the Tyler Perry of it all, um, directing a, a heavy drama like this without being over the top or on the nose, because most of his directing is it's, it's not subtle. But just off the, on the chance that he could actually direct a solid drama, I would much rather see your plot and your pitch. So that's where I'm leaning. Um, and that's where that took me. I think Joe definitely had the better, you know, director and could tell a well-told movie, but yours has the chance to be a really, really, you know, important, impactful movie. So I'm going with Tristan. Um, yeah, and, and I think um, what I would say with Joe's is it's set in one location, but I just think it had way too much going on. I think there was way too much off-scene stuff that all this whole plot of her trapping him in the car – I think setting it in one location would have been interesting if it was one long car ride and you have their ideals, maybe, you know, just a discussion about idealism um, throughout the movie and theories. I, I think that would be just better. Maybe, you know, they don't agree at first. You don't need, like, the overtly racist person like Green Book and by the end of it, oh, racism is cured. But I think you could have a, a good film of two people discussing their views on a subject. And I think Tristan at least pitched that um, – better i like the idea of angela bassett's character not you know there are definitely different levels of it it's not everything is not so black and white and everything like even within within races or within parties or within the same political groups you have disagreements on things and i'd rather see um a film that kind of bases itself on that what tristan's did even though yeah like bobby said tyler perry's not the strongest director but at least he has delved into com or into drama before. He's directed a bunch of stuff, and I think if he's actually passionate about something, he could do it. I also think Tristan's movie is kind of important because um, Tyler Perry films are, are all very popular. They're they're widely seen, and they're very popular within the black community. And I think Tristan's movie is something that um, appeals to that. It's people within the black community disagreeing with each other, but seeing a film um, that kind of delves into that. I think it's better than just being like, oh, it's the old racist white lady that trapped a black guy in, in a car. Like, I don't know. I don't I don't think that story is great unless Joe embraced the horror angle more, and I don't think he really did that. And Regina King has directed one film and then a bunch of TV shows, So, and I haven't even seen One Night in Miami. While it's highly praised from everyone that I've seen who's seen it, um, I'm not sold on her as, like, some huge director that's, like, uh, you know, enough to overcome uh, – the rest of your issues in his, in his plot. So I think Bobby and I agree. Um, Tristan, uh, uh, I even feel probably a little stronger than Bobby did on yours. I think your pitch was very strong this one. Um, 
And uh, so, Tristan, you're going to take the 3-2 lead, and Joe needs a win to stay alive. All right. Uh, I think we're going to go with Nash. All right. Then uh, I'll go Nash. first this time. Mash starred Donald Sutherland. Uh, this is the 1970 Mash. There was a TV show, um, a really famous TV show, based off this uh, that aired for, let's see, from 72 to 83. So a really long-running TV show. But the original um, starred Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gold and Tom Skerritt, Robert Duvall. Um, it was a Robert Altman film. It's it's great. I love Mash. I grew up uh, watching Mash on like old TV channels. Um, in black and white, and I, I really liked it, like TV Land or whatever. So, uh, the staff of a Korean war field hospital use humor and hijinks to keep their sanity in the face of the horror of war. Um, so, I'm interested to the modern version of this. I think MASH is primed for um, a reboot, so I'm interested to see what you guys did with it. So, Joe, who'd you say is going first? Uh, I'll go first. All right, you go first. I'm going to grab a drink real quick while you do your pitch. I can still hear you. I will be back. All right, so like Johnny, I grew up with this, and I think like most people, I'm more familiar with the show than the movie, so that's more the route I wanted to go, and like, I feel like this movie was a little bit more comedic, where the show had a good balance of comedy and drama, and that's what I wanted to do. And my director is Jason Reitman, who directed Up in the Air and Juno, and I feel like he has done a pretty decent balance of comedy and drama. And then uh, I'm going to list my cast, and as I list my cast, you might be able to figure out my rule and how I used it. Uh, but I switched things up a little bit with some of my cast members. So my role of Hawkeye is going to be played by Aubrey Plaza, my, uh, and her best friend Trapper is going to be played by Rashida Jones. My Hot Lips, Ohulhan, is going to be played by Katherine Hahn. My Frank Burns is going to be played by Chris Pratt. Uh, the guy in charge, Henry Blake, is going to be played by Nick Offerman. Father John Mulcahy is going to be played by Jim O'Hare. My radar is going to be Aziz Ansari. And then my nurse karate is going to be Amy Poehler. So if you didn't notice, the rule I used is I cast my show with a sitcom cast and I chose Parks and Rec. My tone is going to be similar tone to the show MASH, a mix of comedy and drama with some small differences. Uh, as you can see, I already flipped the gender of my two leads. I think Aubrey Plaza has shown she can play the person with the heart of gold who acts like they don't care. And Rashida Jones... Uh, shown she can play someone smart and witty and the two kind of played against each other on Parks and Rec so it would be interesting to see them play best friends in uh, this and next I'm setting my movie in 2006 during the war on terror but more importantly during the final days of the last MASH unit which was disbanded in October of 2006 uh, the plot of my movie will be a combination of two episodes of the show uh, The Kids and uh, Tuttle so, when a nearby orphanage is bombed, Nurse Craddy, who runs the orphanage, asks the 4077th for help. They take in the kids and care for the wounded. Nurse Craddy mentions a pregnant girl who has not returned from a visit to a nearby village. Hawkeye becomes concerned about what will happen to the orphanage when they aren't around to help. Amongst all of the chaos, she sneaks into Henry Blake's uh, computer while Trapper watches out. Hawkeye fills out all of the proper paperwork and creates a brand new doctor to come to the 4077th, Captain Tuttle. The doctor is perfect on paper, 6'4", 195 pounds, first-rate education. However, according to Tuttle's file, due to a computer error, he hasn't collected any of his pay and is owed over a year in back pay. Henry Blake is dying to meet the new stud doctor, Hot Lips has a crush on him without even meeting him, and Frank is jealous. Meanwhile, the pregnant girl returns with a gunshot wound. Father Mulcahy leads the doctors in prayer for the safety of the mother and child as Hawkeye and Trapper perform an emergency C-section to save them. 
A member of the military shows up to pay Tuttle, but Hawkeye says Tuttle comes from a rich family and wants all of his money to go to the orphanage. The military officer says he will need to see Tuttle to have him approve of that. Radar, who has been aware of the plan, impersonates Tuttle. Later, a general wants to accommodate Tuttle, but with everyone there, including Henry Blake, who is still wanting to meet the infamous doctor, no one is left to impersonate Tuttle. So Hawkeye somberly steps forward holding a pair of dog tags, saying there was an accident and Tuttle went looking for any orphans who had run off. Tuttle didn't find any orphanage orphans, but unfortunately, a sniper found Tuttle. Hawkeye then says, according to his paperwork, Tuttle, Tuttle wanted all of his money from his GI insurance to go to the orphanage. The movie ends with all of the members of the 4077th flying off, looking over their old home and the orphanage. And that's my pitch. All right. Okay. Joe Folds from uh, Parks and Rec, obviously. A, a pretty good directing choice. And I uh, pulled from more of the couple episodes of the TV show than the original plot of the film. So, Tristan, what angle did you decide to go uh, for this one? I use the same rule as Joe, but I use a different sitcom. I'll get to it in a second. And I'll just say that my writer and director is Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who just did uh, Fleabag on Amazon Prime, and she's uh, now attached to a host of projects. She's become like an all-star of Hollywood just off of that one show. So I think she has a dynamic of being able to capture uh, drama and comedy uh, in one movie, which is something that I know MASH really went for, especially in the TV show. I love the TV show. I watched it a lot when I was a kid on me TV. If you're a Midwest fan, you probably know Me TV. Chicago fans out there, <laughs> WTTW Channel 11. Uh, and my sitcom that I use for my cast is uh, Scrubs. My lead is uh, Ryan Reynolds as a doctor who's been on the. Um, it's, I also set mine during the War on Terror, so he's been out in the Middle East as a doctor on staff, and he uh, he's backed up by a surgeon played by Zach Braff. And a doctor played by Donald Faison, uh, that was JD and Turk from the show uh, Scrubs, as well as a new coming doctor who's kind of like our eyes and ears at the beginning of the movie, and and that's uh, Sarah Sh- uh, Sarah Schalk who played Elliot on Scrubs, the love interest of JD. We also have an old school sergeant played by John C. McGinley, who's played Doctor Cox on that show, and we have a young soldier who just recently got injured and is entered into the hospital, played by Dave Franco. And we have a smaller role as one of the other kind of leaders of the military who's kind of leading uh, the medical division of this of this base, who's played by Brendan Fraser, who also guest started the show for a little bit of time. And my, I thought what was really interesting about the show is how much it weaved in, like, the comedy and the drama, and I think Scrubs did that also. So I think these actors have that kind of past and this that chemistry together that it can go between drama and comedy a lot and also be within like a medical drama kind of concept. So my premise is that Dave Franco's character uh, gets injured and he comes into this hospital and these uh, we spend all of our time pretty much with the doctors. They're like our centerpiece, just like in the movie and the show. So we see them kind of while they're alone, while they're not working, kind of messing around, not taking this super seriously, trying to keep themselves uh, you know, uplifted in spirits. They definitely take the war seriously, but they're trying to sort of keep themselves happy and play some games in the surgery room. We'll get some comedy there with them kind of playing around with each other and having fun. And that fun's interrupted when Dave Brinko's soldier gets brought in and it kind of changes the dynamic of the scene and they realize like, oh, wait, we got to actually do our jobs now. And Dave Franco as a soldier is kind of very down. He's very he's young, so he wasn't really planning on getting injured this young in his life. He's thinking, oh, when you know, I was a football all-star when I was in high school, I was uh, I, would, I could run down the field faster than anybody else on the team. And he's 
kind of talking about like what if I don't get to walk now and that's something that I think Scrubs did well too so like people coming in and realizing like oh my life might actually change totally right now on this one moment because of some mistake I made or some chance encounter I had and we essentially get to see these uh, surgeons and doctors work together to sort of lift up this guy's spirits and make him realize like he can be what he wants to be despite uh, any potential limitations that might come after this uh, after this attack he's experienced and we have these turns between drama and comedy where Dave Franco is finally starting to laugh he's finally starting to have a good time he's playing along with the staff and having a good time too and then suddenly something goes wrong he has a code red he's brought into surgery and we have this very close intense surgery scene where JD uh, JD's actor Zach Braff is this kind of neurotic surgeon who's now having to be very focused and very meticulous and save this guy's life and he saves him at the last second and Dave Franco is kind of realizing he's had this very very close encounter with death and he's finally made it out and he's happy and he survived and they say okay we're gonna send him back uh, home to the America to the United States he's gonna get therapy he's gonna heal he's gonna recover from this uh, attack and and then the, in the last scene they get a call similar to the finale of Mash the show and they find out oh uh, Franco's helicopter crashed on the way back to the United States he actually died on the way back and you get this tragic realization of the realities of war that their helicopter was shot down and that this guy they spent all this whole movie trying to save is just dead <laughs> and I think that's what made the finale of Mash so memorable and so unique and it's something I wanted to bring into the movie and so that's my pitch okay all right Bobby you have any questions for these two uh not not particularly um I mean you know I get the idea based on their casting choices, kind of the tone they're going for, but I'd still would like them to kind of define their tones. It, like what is the balance between the two of them? They can do that as they fight or they can answer it, you know, one by one now, but between the two, what it, are you leaning more drama, leaning more comedy? That's what I want to get from both their pitches. Yeah. I'll, that, I'll I, first and say that I'm leaning a bit more towards comedy. I want the drama moments to hit because they're kind of rare. You know, comedy so that when the drama moments hit, you're like, oh, there it goes, and now it's real. And then you get back comfortable again, then it hits harder again. So I'm definitely leaning a bit hard on how the movie did, but then bringing in elements to the drama like the uh, show did. Okay. What are your thoughts on that? All right. Yeah. So my thing is. It was frozen. No. Am I frozen? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? No. Yep. Yeah, you're, you're good. good All right. So basically, my thing is, as far as the balance, like I know I use the Parks and Rec, which is slightly more comedic. Yeah. But pretty much all of the actors have done dramatic work outside of Parks and Rec. So just because they've done comedic work in Parks and Rec, uh, that's not really the tone I was going for. But that's part of the reason. I mean, I know Aziz Ansari hasn't really. I mean, I know he has Master of None on Netflix, but his character is more comedic, anyways. And I know Amy Poehler hasn't so much, but again, her character is going to be like the runner of the orphanage. She's going to be a little bit more separate from the rest of the main cast. But outside of them, all of them have done dramatic work and have done good dramatic work. And so that's why I went with them. That's also part of why I switched it up. Because I thought Aubrey Plaza was the best fit for the role of Hawkeye. And I thought uh, Rashida Jones was the best fit for the role of Trapper. And when I was looking up episodes, I was trying to find, because that was kind of my initial plan, is, oh, I'm just going to find, like, good quality episodes of the show that maybe aren't as famous, aren't as well known. And 
they're both like top 15 episodes um and one there the the one where they're le- with Tuttle where they were like created the fake guy uh was like a top 10 episode of the show but they were like oh this one is like it's a really good episode of the show but it leans more comedic and then the kids are like that episode where like the orphan girl is shot they were like yeah this is a top 15 episode of the show but it leans a little bit more dramatic so i thought those two plot lines and storylines would balance each other out and the hijinks of creating this fake guy and breaking into his computer and trying to do all this to get everyone to believe in this fake guy would have more of the comedic elements and then trying to uh you know do surgery on the orphans and help the orphans uh would lend more true some more dramatic elements and less comedic elements so i think they would balance each other out and i feel like my tone what i was going for more was the tone of the original mash show because i feel like that's what people more think of when they think of mash they don't really quite think of the movie anymore all right. Um, yeah. yeah, Joe said a lot of his stuff, so fight it out, but you just got a couple minutes on this. I have a... I'm leaning a, a specific direction, I think, uh, pretty heavily, but that could change uh, in the fight. So since Joe just did his little uh, spiel uh, talking more about his movie, uh, Tristan, uh, why is yours better? And we'll give you guys a couple minutes to fight it out. I want to bring up my director before I forget to talk about it because I feel like I've missed that chance a little bit in these pitches to talk about my director. And I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is a really strong pick. I think uh, her show on Amazon Prime was such a big hit, and I didn't expect much from it. I thought, oh, it's just going to be another like comedy with some dry drama once in a while. But it was miles better than I ever thought it was going to be, and I'm super all in on whatever she's going to do next. I know she's attached to a movie now with Donald Glover. They're doing like a another version of Mr. and Mrs. Smith between the two of them, where she's going to be writing and directing it. So she's definitely uh, aiming for these comedy remake style movies. So I picked her because she's interested in this kind of a filmmaking. And I also think she was able to dr- walk between uh, comedy and drama a lot like the show was in the movie in a way it did. So I wanted to capture that, make it be kind of like a collage of these two things. And I think mine captures both pretty well it captures what made the movie really good i've seen the movie a few times i just watched it again a few days ago in preparation for this episode and i think they pull off a comedy of the relationships and the dynamics really well with each other and i think that's something i wanted to capture here these actors have a history of being great together and being know they have chemistry so i picked them because i've seen them together and even in medical kind of settings and they're able to bring out the fun and bring out the humor of that while also not losing the drama so I think they've shown the range, they've shown the chemistry. I just think they work really well together, and I think Phoebe Waller-Bridge can bring that out of them. All right. And then I just have one question. Are Ryan Reynolds and Dave Franco in Scrubs? Oh, they are? Okay. I, I, yeah, they had guest roles for a few episodes. Oh, okay, I just didn't remember that. Yeah. So, okay, Ryan yeah. Reynolds played the friend. If you've ever seen the – there's like a super famous gif and meme of Ryan Reynolds in Scrubs. Um oh. And then uh, Dave Franco was in like the shitty last season. Oh, like, that yeah, was yeah. One of, like, first roles, but he was one of the like the interns or whatever. Okay, I just didn't. Changing. I just didn't remember. But and then my main thing against Tristan's is it just doesn't feel like Mash to me. It just more feels like Scrubs set in, you know, a war zone. I just as he was giving his pitch, like just none of it really felt like Mash to me. It just felt a lot more like Scrubs than it did Mash, and that's my big negative against his. Is I was just 
I feel like that's more of a Scrubs reboot than a Mash reboot. Just based on like the tone. I, I think was Scrubs in a way was almost a tribute to them. What are you saying? Go ahead, Bruce. Oh no, I was I was done with my statement. I was just. I think in a lot of ways, Scrubs feels almost like a modernization of Mash, where you're taking these like uh, characters you don't necessarily see as comedic and making them comedic. And I think that. I changed up the roles a lot for these characters, not playing the same characters. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that famous gif, yeah, the one where Brian Reynolds says, but why, while holding like a mask down, He's that's from Scrubs, I'm sure yeah. you've seen that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I brought in, uh, of course he brought back like the leads, because I know they're uh, charismatic, and it would be fun if I was watching this movie to see them all back on screen together, but I brought in Brendan Fraser, I brought in Ryan Reynolds, I brought in Dave Franco, like these outsiders who can change up the dynamic of the cast without just making it feel like oh here's scrubs again i bring in these people who aren't necessarily associated with scrubs to change up the cast and the characters and i also don't have them necessarily playing the same roles they played in the show either and i think that even though they're in they're also playing medical professionals they're not playing the same people in the same roles so i think that's it doesn't necessarily feel like scrubs to me it feels like mash but with scrubs cast and that's what i was trying to go for joe quick response if you have anything left to say but i have my decision yeah, I mean, if you have your decision, then there's probably nothing big enough I could go to change it if you're ruling his way or if you're ruling my way, then there's really no point in talking. Yeah, so Bobby, I chose this one. Um, what are what are your thoughts on this one? I might need you to swing. Um, I've been pretty close, but honestly, I think right now I'm leaning towards Joe. Um, I think his leads that he chose... Um, from the sitcom itself, like if you're using like, you know, use of rule, I think Tristan stretched and went, okay, these are these side characters and, and made them kind of the leads of the movie, um, which, you know, they're strong actors, but I think Joe chose the best, you know, actors that could portray the dramatic role. Like I, I think Aubrey Plaza as a, as a lead is fantastic. Uh, that's a really good choice. Um, I, I got a better picture of his tone for MASH working well, and he drew from the TV show, so that's where I'm leaning. Um, but I don't know if you're going the same way as me or not. Um, yeah, you know, I, I thought uh, it was interesting both of you went with the sitcoms. Um, and Joe's, I really liked his usage of, of uh, Parks and Rec because Aubrey Plaza, Rashida Jones, Nick Offerman, while they can all be super funny, um, like in Parks and Rec and like in MASH, you need that comedic element. They're all fantastic, dramatic um, actors. So I really liked his usage of that rule, and you picked the right show. Um, Tristan, I thought your idea was awful as soon as you said Scrubs, but then when you said your lead was Ryan Reynolds and you included Dave Franco and um, Brendan Fraser, I liked where you went with that more. Um, but I really don't see like Zach Braff or Donald Faison really fitting in as well, but they have kind of smaller roles, so I liked your usage because you still had to use basically the main characters of it. But so what it came down to for me was the directing choices, because while I think Joe's pitch stays closer to the tone of um, mash, when I think of it, Tristan's, I think having more of a comedy and then such a tragic ending. I think that instead of, um, I think it takes a really strong director to actually pull that off. And Phoebe Waller-Bridge, has never directed anything ever. She's not credited directing anything on IMDb, even her show um, that she's written uh, uh, multiple multiple shows. I think she's a fantastic writer, 
Um, she was the only good part of the fucking solo movie um, for me. But I think acting wise, if you're gonna put Donald Faison and John C. Kinley, I don't think are very good actors. Um, I think you need a strong director to really get a pull a good performance dramatically. Um, and I don't think that choosing a first time director was the right way to go with that. So I think that's what it came down to. And Joe, I trust what this is doing. Yeah, but so. I know mean, Johnny's having some issues, but I, I think he's going yeah. with um, with Joe here, uh, I believe, um, based on your, your directing choice. And I, I do agree. I didn't yeah. touch on the directors because I kind of wanted to get to what Johnny was thinking, but. Um, I was in the same vein where Joe had a more established director and Tristan had a very established writer and not necessarily an established director. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And one thing I was going to point out, too, it didn't uh, uh, it didn't really matter as far as his pitch went, but the, what's his, the guy that died in the helicopter crash it wasn't in the finale. It was like the season four finale, but it wasn't like, oh, he got that wrong, so it's a dang against his pitch or anything. It's just like a incorrect fact, I guess. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, Joe's, Joe's makeup, um, yeah you sound like Optimus Prime, Prime running through a blender. On my end. I don't know if he does for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so let's see. So we, we have a ruling. Johnny's going to figure out his tech issues. But um, so Tristan, you lost that, and we're heading, we're tied, heading into the last movie. Um, so basically, just tell us who's going first. We're at Mrs. Doubtfire now, right? Yeah. Yep. All right. Uh, let's make Joe go first on this one. Uh, I gotta find All right, that was out. my voice. Am I? Am I? You're sure? good I, now. I sound better. You're yeah. good now. I had to just unplug yeah. and plug in my my mic. Um, yeah. Going back real quick on Joe's last one, I think that he had a good director choice because uh, Jason Reitman did Juno, Up in the Air, Young Adult, and Thank You for Smoking, which all are great. Who have great comedy elements and um, dramatic elements, and Joe sometimes struggles with picking directors, so I wanted to give him credit for. Yeah, I focused more on my directors this time, and I still got shit with, like, Regina King. You told me your advice. is like, hey, pick someone who did one movie and did it, like, it really well. I picked Regina King. Oh, she just did one movie, and she's getting praised for it. And then you're like, eh, she only did one movie. I'm like, the fuck? But anyways. And I, oh, did you give the backstory on Mrs. Doubtfire? <laughs> she, I think I think with your tone of the movie, I would have liked more of, like, a horror yeah. director. Not yet. So Mrs. Doubtfire, obviously, it came out in... Um, 1993, it starred uh, the legendary Robin Williams, um, and after a bitter divorce, an actor disguises himself as a female housekeeper to spend time with his children held in custody by his former wife. This movie also stars Pierce Brosnan in a drive-by fruiting, and I love it. So I'm interested to see what you guys did with it. Great movie. So, All right, let's so hear so if anyone's keeping track, I'm just going to get into my role usage right now. And my director is Tyler Perry. Uh, my role of Daniel Hillard is played by Aldous Hodge, who played MC Ren in Straight Outta Compton. He's also in uh, One Night in Miami as well. Uh, my role of Stu is going to be played by Tyler Perry because, like, uh, like Tristan said, he usually has like a little bit of a small role in his movies. My role of Gloria... Is going to be played by uh, Nia Long, who was kind of Will Smith's main love interest in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And then I kind of just cast two, like, kid actors I could find for the roles of Lydia and Natalie. I have Jordan Rhea James, who was in the uh, Netflix show Family Reunion. And then Natalie is uh, Faith Herman. She was in Shazam and This Is Us. And so this is my pitch. 
Daniel Hillard is convicted of shoplifting when trying to steal food for his daughters after his wife's death. He is sentenced to three years in prison and his daughters are sent to live with his wealthy in-laws, Stu and Gloria. Three years later after his release, he appeals to have his daughters returned to him, but his former father-in-law says he is unfit to be a father and the girls are better under his care. And the judge agrees. Daniel is broken. He wants to see his girls. Daniel sees that his in-laws have put out an ad for a nanny. He asks his former father-in-law if he can at least watch his daughters during that time, but Stu and Gloria say he is a bad influence. Desperate to see his daughters, Daniel asks his makeup artist sisters to change up his appearance, but he is always too recognizable. As a last-ditch effort, they decide to dress him up as a woman. They turn him into an older woman. Daniel gets hired as the nanny, named Mrs. Doubtfire. Gloria quickly befriends Mrs. Doubtfire and even invites her to family events. The daughters eventually discover their father as Mrs. Doubtfire and work with him to help keep, him, keep his secret. Uh, Stu becomes suspicious of Mrs. Doubtfire and follows them to their rundown home in a bad apartment, only to find out it's actually Daniel. Stu tells Daniel he never wants to see him again. Stu tells Gloria what happened, and Gloria defends Daniel, saying Mrs. Doubtfire was a better nanny than they ever could have expected. Uh, Gloria says the kids are doing better in school and are better behaved than ever, and how could Daniel be a bad influence? Uh, Stu returns to Daniel's house the next day and says that the courts won't let him hand over custody right now, but they have an extra room and will let him move in. And that is my pitch. It's just a story about a father desperate to be with his kids, but told in a slightly different way than the original. Okay, Tristan, what do you got for us? Uh, so for my Mrs. Doubtfire, I'll start with my uh, my director here. I picked Alan Ball, who is a longtime writer and director on TV, and he's in a lot of movies. He's also LGBT, which I think plays into my premise. I'll get into that in a little bit. He just recently, I think last year, directed Uncle Frank on Amazon Prime, which I think was a nice kind of pleasant, fun comedy with a lot of heart and a lot of character focus, and I think he could bring that into this uh, role here. And my rule that I use is that the character is going to break the fourth wall. So my Mrs. Doubtfire is going to kind of look at the audience and address us because we're the only people who are kind of in on the fact that she's not really who she says she is. You know, she's not really Mrs. Doubtfire. She's not really the nanny. And my casting here is uh, RuPaul plays Daniel. Uh, he, he breaks the fourth wall and kind of addresses. If you don't know who RuPaul is, he's uh, the host of a huge, hugely popular show, RuPaul's Drag Race. And... I, I, for my premise, I had Daniel being a stay-at-home dad who's in a kind of nice but quiet relationship with his wife while he moonlights as a drag queen, and that's like his his joy in life is that he gets to go out into these drag queen uh, nightclubs and live up his life as a drag queen. And when he finds out that he's being divorced uh, by his wife, he decides to dress up in his drag queen outfit kind of hold it up a little bit and then go back and become the nanny and say he's Mrs. Doubtfire while he's in character as his drag uh, character. So we get him uh, interacting with his children and trying to be, connect, be a father to them while also not revealing himself as, as uh, Daniel rather than Mrs. Doubtfire. And we get some really good comedic scenes where he kind of does like Jim looks at the camera once in a while and things like that or, or addresses us and talks to us and says, you know, can you, can you believe this? Or they would never guess. Or they'll say something offhanded about, like, Mrs. Doubtfire and her gender or her, uh, her, I don't know, the way she looks. And RuPaul will look in the camera and be like, if only they knew it was underneath this. And this kind of, like, nice, fun kind of jokes. I think RuPaul has that kind of, like, edgy humor that would be very fun to bring out in, in this movie, I think. 
Alan Ball also has history with bringing out humor in a lot of these kind of uh, situations, these situational comedies that Mrs. Doubtfire brings out. I think the original movie is very, very funny, and especially in that diner scene where uh, he's trying to like go back and forth and change between Mrs. Doubtfire and between Daniel. And I want to attribute that scene in my movie by having RuPaul is is finally meeting with his wife, trying to uh, get back with. She's finally agreed after so long to say, "Okay, fine, I'll have dinner with you." This one time, and he meets her there in Daniel's character. But at the same time, she scheduled the kids to be walked by Mrs. Doubtfire at home. So he's having to run back and forth and constantly changing costumes and constantly going back and forth between uh, the dinner with the wife and then the kids at home. So I think that's a way to kind of tribute the original scene while also like bringing, build, building up the ante a little bit and having it be bigger and having it be more focused on the core relationship between uh, Daniel and his wife rather than bringing in like, oh, he's going to get a job from these random like suits that are in the plot now. And in the end, I want them to decide not to get back together. But Daniel realizes, because he's outed similarly to the original, uh, his youngest daughter finds out that oh, Mrs. Doubtfire is actually daddy, and now they have this suit shared secret between the two of them. And by the end, once he's out of it in this, in this big scene I just described, where he finally comes back to his wife and he's forgotten to take off the wig, and she realizes, oh, wow, you've been Mrs. Doubtfire the entire time, and you've been caring for these kids, and maybe I, I'm not going to get back together with you, but maybe we should probably talk about visitation, maybe talk about you having a relationship with your children. And that's the end of my movie. You don't get back together but Daniel's finally able to get a chance to see his children again. And RuPaul gets to have fun and be hilarious and bring it, bring drag to the forefront of film. I think it's been big on TV. It's been big on like TikTok and media. And I think it's time to have a really good, respectful movie about a drag queen that doesn't like totally mock drag, but also has the fun and the humor of what drag is. And that's my pitch. All right. Okay. I really like that. Bobby, you have any questions? Uh, yeah, I have a question for each of them. Uh, for Joe, it's more, you know, what what is going to differentiate this from an, a typical Tyler Perry comedy? Because you kind of have the cross-dressing, you know, kind of thing that goes on in Medea and all that. So just kind of what is differentiating um, from all his other movies in that vein? Uh, so my thing is, instead of being, because uh, I feel like, oh, you have like a man dressing up as a woman, you would expect it to be a comedy. Where I feel like mine is more of like a drama. Like there will be comedic elements. Like I feel like it is a Tyler Perry movie. There will be moments of comedy. But for the most part, it's not like, oh, this Hodge isn't playing like this. Oh, this wacky, zany lady. It's more of like a, he's like that desperate to spend time with his kids that he's willing to dress up like this older, you know, woman to, you know, you know, sneak basically like sneak into the family to play. It's not exactly like, oh, this like wacky, crazy, like old ladies playing with the kids is more just like he's that desperate and so it's more of a drama than a comedy okay um and then tristan um from everything i've seen seen of rupaul whether he's hosting or whether he's acting he's always kind of the same he's himself or herself she's herself in that so in that whole thing so how are you going to differentiate uh, rupaul's character from when they are you know not Mrs. Doubtfire from when they are, because I have not seen them be anything other than, you know, th their typical personality. I think having the two dynamics gives them a chance. I believe uh, it's it's he, but I'm sorry if I, if I yeah, misgender it's, RuPaul. I, I, I'm not, not intending sure. to. I think, it's, I think it is he, technically. But, yeah. Uh, and I think that having that two dynamics, when he's in Mrs. Doubtfire, 
player's uh, costume, he's able to be that kind of bombastic, fun RuPaul that we know. And when he's breaking the fourth wall, he's able to kind of be in that character of RuPaul that we know. But while he's playing Daniel, it gives him a chance to kind of break away from that and be a little more reserved, a little more personal. I've seen him on interviews and stuff like that. And when he gets a chance to talk about his, his life and a little bit more reserved, a little more reserved in his personality, and he's very interesting and very dynamic. And I think that he could bring that into Daniel while also being able to have a lot of fun with Mrs. Doubtfire and give us that big, fun RuPaul personality we'd love to see. Okay. Yeah. Johnny? Um, yeah, Bobby kind of addressed anything that I might have uh, had to ask. So I just want to hear you fight it out. We're making pretty good time, but you guys have a few minutes on this, and then uh, we'll make our final call. So, um, Joe, why is your film stronger? Yeah, it's just like the one major thing I question about Tristan's is like the acting ability of RuPaul. Like, I'm sure... Like, the drag scenes could probably work, but when he's just being Daniel, I don't know if I trust RuPaul's acting ability to make it believable. And sure, maybe, I'm sure he's not on all the time as a human being, but that doesn't mean that he can still give a good performance in those toned-down scenes in a point where believable, because you got to have those moments of, you know, just being a normal person of, like, outside of the costume, and I don't know if I'll... If I if it will have good performances in those moments where Aldous Hodge is a good qualified actor and he can give us, you know, good moments in and out of uh, the, you know, costume of Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah, the reason I I think I went more comedic with mine is because we don't really know RuPaul's dramatic uh, chops. I didn't want to put him in a situation you couldn't necessarily pull off. So, he I think he can perfectly fine pull off like a relaxed. Uh, Daniel, but and I think I picked him mostly because I know for a fact that he can pull off Mrs. Doubtfire to make that really fun and really exciting. And I think we've gotten to a point in society where it's not necessarily funny just to be like, oh, look, it's a guy in a dress now. And that could almost get to like a defensive level. And I think when you bring in the drag element, you make it the fact that they're not just Daniel who decides to be in a dress, it's Daniel who has this secret life as a drag queen. And he's in a way being able to bring this home and introduce uh, her. her drag personality to the children that he's had and get a, get a chance to meet uh, the children as the drag persona. I think RuPaul can pull off that fun really well. And I think he can pull off, I mean, you don't have to have like Daniel Day-Lewis double acting chops to pull off like a strained husband who's in a slightly unfulfilled marriage and isn't really open to who, who he is to his family. And then ultimately ends up opening up to him at the end. I think that's something that RuPaul can pull off, especially because I'm sure I mean, he had to come out at some point as gay to his family and friends. He had to really fight against, uh, like, prejudice in his own life. And I think he could lead into that and pull out that for his dramatic performance in these Daniel scenes. Yeah, I just, I just don't know. It's all, like, speculation at that point if it's possible. I just haven't ever seen anything to know that it's possible. And my other main thing is I just don't know if I, like, believe the storyline setup, like, the basically the setup of the movie of... You know he's gone all of this time and like i guess the wife just never questions where he goes never follows him to figure out that he's a drag queen after x amount of years of doing it how many nights a week like i feel like at that like if i'm sitting in the theater i'm sitting at home watching that movie it's gonna be i don't know if i'll be able to believe that she's just like oh yeah he's just gone you know two nights a week for a few hours and i don't really know where he goes or what he does but I didn't get into that very much in my pitch, but that is uh, like the premise of why they divorce. Like she thinks that he's having an affair because he's always sneaking out and always saying, oh, I'm working later. I went out with the guys or this and that. And he's 
too afraid because of the social stigma to admit to her what he's actually doing. And it gets to the point where she says, well, I have to divorce you because I know you're doing something that you don't want me to know about. I can't trust you. And that's like the, how, why they divorce is because he's sneaking off and because he's not where he's supposed to be at times and you can't really tell her why. I just feel like with most divorces with lawyers and private investigators and stuff, like I just still don't know if I believe that no one, like it just doesn't come out and no one finds out that that's what he's doing. And it'd be hard for me as a viewer to, you know, get past that. I understand that, but I also understand that it's like a comedy. Sometimes you have to spend the disbelief for that element. And I also think it, it does come up by the end and we're seeing them going through the process of divorce. It's not like they've, it's 10 years later, like, she's saying oh i'm gonna divorce you let's start this process and then he goes to be uh the the mrs doubtfire and you you see as they're going along this divorcing process he's starting the he's trying to keep these two personas up and it's getting closer and closer to falling apart as he's going along and i think you get to that moment at the end where it does come up because of course it would there's no way you maintain a mrs doubtfire level deception for more than a short amount of time you know and I think I, I perfectly address that. It does come out. It doesn't have to last long because it would never last long. Yeah, I mean, it's the same way in my movie. And I feel like I'd be better than Oscar. I was just going to really make one more here, so. final point. But I was just going to say we already have. Like, my, my last point. final sentence was we already have one like comedic version of the story. And I feel like it'd be interesting to see like a slightly more dramatic take on this story. And that's all I was going to say. Okay, all right, Bobby, what are your thoughts on this one? Um, I'm pretty close for this one. I don't know if you are feeling the same way, but um, I think it really comes down to who I believe in that lead role to me um, because I think I like Tristan's director a little better, but I think I like you know some of, the, some of Joe's story elements a little better, and it really just comes down to I don't think that RuPaul has changed range because the, the original is the dynamic between Daniel and he is not Mrs. Doubtfire and is to show that different dad because um, he, he has to actually take care of his own children. And I don't know if RuPaul has shown enough for me um, from what I've seen to pull that off, even in a more comedic movie. Um, so I'm leaning Joe, but it's really really close it's probably 5149 okay so my thing with that is i think that balances out a little bit because i believe rupaul can do all of the mrs doubtfire scenes way better than i know that aldous hodge can do those which maybe he can pull off the daniel role but uh, what has he ever done to show me that he could play that balances out pretty well. I think I think the most important part of this film is the Mrs. Doubtfire role. So I think if anything, that leads a little stronger to Tristan's point. Um, there are a couple story elements that I think both of you could have improved on. Joe, I hate your ending of him going to live with um, dynamic to end on. But Tristan, I don't like that you kept like a similar ending of how the wife finds out. I would have loved it if he still does the drag racing shows and she ended up there with like the boyfriend and then they're like wait is that our nanny and then they discover it through that way and then he can kind of come out as mrs doubtfire and as the um like and uh the drag queen i think that would have been uh, a much stronger ending to yours so i think there are 
elements that both of you could have improved. But I think at the end of the day, if you announce to me that RuPaul, who has this super popular TV show, you know, part part of the LGBTQ movement, and this movie's going to deal with those things, you said it's RuPaul's version of Mrs. Doubtfire versus Tyler Perry's version of Mrs. Doubtfire. I, I think just the general excitement would be around RuPaul. Um, and I think just if I'm going to see that that film, I think Tyler Perry, Joe could should have just stuck with um, Tyler Perry's at least his strengths in terms of the, the popularity um, of being a comedic director. Tristan had a very good, strong pitch around Tyler Perry's dramatic directing, so we kind of forgave um, the drama. But Joe, I don't think your pitch is strong enough to really tell me that you're building good drama. Um, to make up for the lack of experience Perry has in that. So I think um, Tristan uh, wins this last point. Despite his, uh, his rants earlier and attacking the fellow contestants and judges, I think he he uh, edged it out today, and I'm going to give the victory yeah. to Tristan. Honestly. What do you got to say, Joe? You think you're the co-founder? You're so powerful. You're so good. You I mean, made I'm six still... days. Technically, the co-founder. You, you, so. you were the co-founder. I'm coming to take over. I'm the, I'm the new co-founder now. You know, I, I, Johnny, the me co-founder. I don't think that's accurate, but yeah, that's how that works. Yep. You're just the Elon Musk and a <laughs> Muslim. You're, you know, well, sneak I, your way in there and claim the role of co-founder, even though the company was founded I, yeah. like decades before you showed up. But yeah, I'm co-founder now. All right, I, I don't. Yeah, Justin's know. claiming he's coming after that co-founder. I'm taking it, Joe. I would. I'm at surprise. You know, if you win the tournament, you get to be co-founder. I think that's Joe. It's much better than having to break your foot. I gotta say that. That's Uh, way better, but um. Okay, so everyone, this was a great episode. I uh, I thought there were a lot of really close ones tonight, um, despite uh, Tristan's give up pitch. And actually, I think um. So if I'm gonna go with strongest pitch for the night, um. It's tough for me. Because I thought the funniest pitch tonight was Tristan's uh, longest yard. You know, that was right, pretty, even though it was a, a loss. But that was the funniest pitch. pitch. Um, but as far as Joe went, his best pitch was MASH. I really liked his casting choice. He had a great director um, for that. And for Tristan, I thought his strongest pitch was um, either his Mrs. Doubtfire pitch, even though I think he could have um, fixed a couple things in his plot-wise, um, or... Surprisingly enough, I never would have thought going into the episode that someone's best pitch would have been their Tyler Perry film, but I thought Tristan's Driving Miss Daisy um, would interest me a lot, and I hate the original movie. Whereas, like, the first two pitches of My Fair Lady, I hate that film, and I thought both those pitches weren't very strong. I thought the Mrs. Doubtfire pitch, or the um, Driving Miss Daisy pitches, were both good, but Tristan's was really strong. Um, So, Bobby, as my my fellow judge, what were your favorites uh, of the night? Um, I agree that, I mean, Driving Miss Daisy, I think, was um, was Tristan's best pitch. I mean, we were talking behind the scenes, and the only thing that I had questions on was Tyler Perry, but I loved the entire pitch, and I think you defended that well. So that was definitely my favorite of Tristan's. Um, and for Joe, I mean, yeah, it's hard to not go with MASH. That was a really well-done pitch. I think you cast uh, everyone from Parks and Rec into those roles perfectly. Um, and I think you you meshed the tones really well. So I, I think I do agree. Those were the ones that definitely stood out, and they were not like a fifty-one forty-nine type of you know yeah. verdict um, um, for me. 
And Joe, you uh, you had the sweet smell of success last week after a long absence, and you were close tonight, as you're used to close losses. You've had a lot of. Uh, how how are you feeling? Is this hurt your confidence uh, from last week, or are you just rearing to get back on the? Just gives me more fire to kick your ass in two weeks. So that's all it does. And hopefully, uh, where I live, Max yeah, has better internet. Really does mean though. Yeah. So. yeah. What that really does mean, though, is we do not have a challenge yet for Johnny for champion. No, uh, so. If Joe had won tonight, then he would have been – the next match would have been a championship match. But uh, we're not quite there yet. We need someone to win two in a row. Yeah, Trist, uh, yeah Tristan's the closest right now. Tristan uh... Uh, Tristan beats Bobby. It's yeah, uh... probably um, a few weeks. Tristan will probably face Bobby. Um, and that will be uh, to maybe decide a number one contender for the yeah, title. I mean, it but... might if I beat you next week. Because next week Johnny and I are facing sure. each other. So if I beat Johnny, Tristan and I would the winner of that match would be going for the championship. If if I lose to Johnny, then Tristan would be going for it. Well, not... When um, Tristan's or hardest to fight against. What was that to me? Yeah, no hardest hardest yes. uh, pitch to fight against your favorite pitcher, Tristan. Uh, the hardest to fight against was I think the Mrs. Doubtfire. I actually like that, like that one a lot. That was that was hard. And then I, I think it was a tie between Mrs. Doubtfire and Driving Miss Daisy. It's very, I mean, not that our pitches were similar from Mrs. Doubtfire, but we didn't really have too many similar pitches. It's very hard to fight when you have identical pitches, and then it's also kind of hard to fight when your pitches are polar opposite because then it just kind of comes down to, uh, the judges' tastes. And it's like, you're just trying to throw shit at the wall and hopefully something sticks. It's basically. Tristan, Mr. Business Suit over there. Uh, what um, what was the hardest push to fight against for, for Joe? Uh, kind of in concept, very similar. We even use the same rule, I'd, I think. You definitely beat me on the director. I'm really, I would love to see Phoebe Roller Bridges' directorial debut, but I totally get not buying that as the choice. You know, like I couldn't even argue against that. I love arguing with the judges, but <laughs> that wasn't the one I could argue with the judges on. Uh, that was definitely good. I also thought your driving Miss Daisy was was pretty good, at least in in the pitch it was. And I it was, I think when you had Regina King as your director, I immediately gasped. I was like, well, I I'm gonna have to fight on this one, and then. It, it never came up with the King was possible because I was like, as soon as I say that, it's going to remind everyone that he put the great director that's like right off of a hit. So yeah. I was definitely scared that Joe was going to wreck me as soon as he said Regina King on Jogging Stacey. <laughs> but that was the hardest one to fight against. I do want to announce really quickly on here since we're on the podcast that if you will follow us on Movie Change Up on TikTok, I'm going to be starting a daily marathon through tons of DC movies. I, I know I planted the seeds for the masterpiece that's ahead of us, Batman vs. Superman. But I have a whole whole stack of DC movies back here I'm going to burn through. So if you want to check my binge through all these DC movies, you want to vote on which one I watch next, you want to suggest some, maybe some older ones I might not have seen or might not have seen in a while, check it out on Movie Changeup. I'll be doing daily watch through all these movies. And Joe, I just want to remind you that you lost, in case you forgot, and well, that I threw a pitch and I still won. So look at that. Yeah, go watch yeah, yeah, just well, just uh, I threw a pitch as well, and you, then you are leading right up to the Snyder cut with that, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go right up to the day of the Snyder Cut and then give a review of Snyder Cut right when it drops. I'll maybe stay up to 4 o'clock in the morning or whatever it drops on HBO because I can't wait for this movie. Good or bad, it's like a thing I never thought would happen. You know, and I'm excited to see it. Yeah, I threw a pitch right, as well. I just Tristan didn't do it. As, and, yeah, <laughs> I threw a pitch as well. I just didn't do it in as glorious a fashion. I just basically was like, Moulin Rouge, same plot. Here's my cast. Don't care. And then Tristan basically did the same thing of like, yep, same plot. Here's my cast. <laughs> and so, because I was like, oh, I'm not going to. I knew Tristan was a big fan and I but don't I do really care. care about it. And I'm like, I'm not going to put effort into this movie. I'll put effort in other places. And then Tristan really didn't do anything more than I did. It was just a debate of casts. Yeah, that's all I have to say. Yeah. Follow. All right. Well, movie change up uh, on all of the social media apps. Uh, uh, we are on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, um, as well as uh, obviously on YouTube. Please subscribe and uh, like our videos and uh, give us some feedback. Um, we have the live comments, but throw some comments up on YouTube. And if there's either pitches you want to see us do or movies we want or uh, rules for I or, uh, ideas for rules. Um, we'd love that. So, you know, contact us throughout whatever you can, uh, you know, comment on our Instagram post or YouTube videos. And, and that being said, I think um, stop and I got it two and a half hours. So that's uh, maybe a little longer than we plan on doing, but I think it's our sweet spot. So um, that being said, uh, again, I'm Johnny Duke, and uh, have a great night, everybody. Thank you for, for watching.